listening to the Northern Hunter Podcast, home of all things hunting, fishing, and outdoors in Alaska. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. My name is James Payne. And I'm Dalton Gray. And today we are going to be bringing you a slightly different uh, episode. As you may have noticed, Mo did not introduce himself. That's because he's not able to be here with us today. Yeah. Uh, which makes this a very interesting episode because I'm pushing the red button today. Yeah. So this is a little scary. We're going to try to... Uh, you have the power. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to try to get through this one uh, without hiccups, without you know audio cutting out or anything like that. Um, and uh, Mo's... Out doing doing good work, helping helping some kids out, and uh, and doing doing a cool program there. So yeah. uh, wish him the best, and uh, we're happy for him. But uh, today we're going to be talking about we're going to touch on a, a couple of listener uh, comments and questions, um, yeah. and then go into the guided hunters expected experience. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically for Alaska. Specifically for Alaska, we've been doing a lot kind of in the realm of gear kind of in the realm of yeah. uh, hunting styles, things like that. This is going to be more what you can expect when you're coming up here. So if you're, you're looking at maybe doing a guided hunt in the next several years or you're, uh, maybe you're planning your first one this year and you just found the podcast, um, mm-hmm. this will be kind of an insight uh, to guide camp, to getting here, things to make sure, double check, triple check, yeah. uh, everything like that. And uh, it's going to be really cool. I, th- I think this is going to be fun. I think it's going to be different. So yeah. Um, on the topic of listener questions and comments, though, I just want to say thank you guys so much for writing in. We've been getting a slew of of comments and emails. Yeah. Um, and we've really enjoyed reading every single one of them. Uh, you guys are really helping out the podcast with with you guys' involvement. And we appreciate that very much. Uh, for everybody that's uh, listening for the first time and hasn't written in, uh, we do our best to reply as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can reach us if you have any hunting questions or uh, ballistic questions related to hunting, related to Alaska. Mm-hmm. Give us a shout at uh, info at the Northern Hunter. That's our email for questions and stuff like that. Uh, listener interaction, and then uh, if, if you're able to go to our website at or at northernhunter.com, we have a contact button there. You can also reach out to our socials, and uh, that's at the Northern Hunter. Currently on Facebook or Instagram, and. Yeah. Uh, believe we're going to have a Twitter by the time this episode comes out. So I'll go ahead and say really? that if you want to go. I don't know the handle just yet, but um, but we'll make a post about it or something. So yeah. uh, we're expanding, you know, trying yeah. to get into a little bit more of the free speech realm. So I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of experience with Twitter, but uh, yeah. but I like what they've been doing over there. So yeah. Um, Instagram is not exactly a hunting friendly censorship platform, which is so weird because so many people use it as yeah. such. Yeah. Like it's 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 what I use it for, right? Yeah, and, and every every hunting show, every every person you like watching, you know, all of our buddies, they're all posting all over the place. But they, yeah. it's ridiculous how much they try to censor it. So yeah, yeah. Um, but and if you'd like to help us continue what we're doing, obviously, and keep growing and and, and keep progressing, um. Supporting the show really helps us out a lot, um, and uh, you can do that uh, multiple ways, but the best way is to shop from our sponsors. Yes. Um, if you go to the website, we have a partners page there that has all of the partners uh, listed there, some that are just gracious enough to help us out doing what we're doing, mm-hmm. and uh, we really like promoting their stuff. It's all good quality stuff, and then some actually have discount codes. Mm-hmm. Um, that you can shop with. And when you do that, that helps them out. Um, that helps us out. And if you don't want to go all the way to the website, uh, we've 
also added those links into the show notes. So whatever platform you're listening to, you can scroll down to the show notes and click mm-hmm. the links to to those. But yeah. why don't you tell them a little bit about those? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the now notorious intro segment of while you're on your hunt. Yes. <laughs> you need to be protecting your rifle with the rifle cover from Stealthy Hunter. And that's like the original um, partnered slash sponsorship item that we uh, that we introduced on the show. Um, of course, that's from Stealthy Hunter, mm-hmm. um, our good friend Ryan Lampers. He's been uh, a huge help to us on the podcast and a lot of advice and things as he's been in the industry for a long time. And so we've been working with him almost since the beginning mm-hmm. and uh, certainly behind the scenes from the beginning and then with the official partnership with the show. So if you go over to StealthyHunter.com, um, and, and again, you can find any of these links through our partners page on our website. Mm. But if you just want to go into StealthyHunter.com on your web browser, um, you can find uh, that rifle cover that we talk about a lot. You can find the glassing pad, any uh, stealthy nutrition supplements, turmeric, uh, protein powder, bone broth, um, uh, probiotics, gut health, all, all kinds of different things there, vitamin supplements. Um, and, and it's all geared towards the outdoorsman mm-hmm. um, type of person, right? It's joint recovery. It's muscle recovery. It's muscle building with, with, with some of the protein powders and things like that. Um, a, a lot of their CBD products, you know, help a lot with joints and aches and pains yeah. that are just a natural byproduct of pounding out the mountains. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a it's, it's a physically demanding thing to go on some of these hunts and, uh, yeah, you, you get back from a moose hunt and if you have to pack a moose any distance at all, and you're going to be a little bit sore and, uh, over time that wears on you. And so a lot of these stealthy nutrition products are the way that we tend to go, um, certainly mm-hmm. now. I just put um, it in big order with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, after that, uh, and, well, I should mention through Stealthy Hunter, your discount code at checkout is the Northern Hunter. No caps, no space, just type in the Northern Hunter and you'll get your discount code there. And then uh, Yukon River Knives is another big one for us. We also have a discount code through them. It's the mm-hmm. same as Stealthy Hunter. It's the Northern Hunter. Um, and you can shop any and all of their knives that they have listed on their website right now. Um, the Hunter, the Small Game, the ATK Rifle Sling slash mm. Knife Combo. That's a great set. Which is a fantastic idea. Yeah. I, I've, I've carried mine um, since the day I got it earlier on this year, um, all the way through guide season and, and, and even on my personal hunts as well. It's very handy to have. Um, the ATK stands for always there knife mm-hmm. and it sits in the rifle sling in a nice protected leather sheath there. It doesn't come out. It has a nice little paracord retention system. Um, but it's not, it, it's also not difficult to get the knife out of its sheath either. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's another one of our sponsors of Yukon River Knives. After that, we have Batum 907, um, our local Alaska bear bait supply for all of our attractants and lures. Um, you can go on Batum907.com and in the discount code at checkout, you can type in TNHP, the abbreviation for our podcast name, and that'll get you a discount there as well. Um, Batum907 is is the Northern Hunter podcast exclusive supplier mm. of all of our bear baiting lures and attractants. And they also sell trapping lures and moose lures that are legal for use in Alaska. Um, after that, we have Hammer Bullets, our newest addition to our discount code lineup. The discount code for Hammer Bullets is also the Northern Hunter. Apply mm-hmm. that at checkout. You'll get a significant discount on that order as well. Um, Hammer Bullets, man, I, I know we keep saying it, but their stuff is seems to always be in stock. Yeah. And it they're really great. Does. They're great bullets. They're very easy to load for. They're different than loading conventional style bullets. So do some homework on that. Um, 
that the, the owners, uh, Brian and Steve, are very good about talking with consumers. Mm-hmm. If you have questions, they have their numbers on the website. At some point, that's going to change. <laughs> right. <laughs> so take advantage of that now. Uh, I know at the time of this recording, they are out of the country in Australia mm-hmm. doing some bullet testing down under. Yep. And uh, obviously, we're excited to see the results from that. I, I know uh, a few things they're testing. It's some uh, it's some exciting new stuff. So yeah. they're always trying to innovate. Uh, they've got a very unique design with their hammer bullets. I'm not going to go into all that right now. You can check out their website and learn more about them. And then last but not least, our last partner um, is Weatherby Rifles in Sheridan, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a great all-American company. Um, of course, the Mark V is made here in the States. And uh, they recently introduced their new Model 307, um, which is the area code, I guess, um, for yep. um, for Sheridan, Wyoming. Uh, that their 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 new location there uh, from the last few years, anyway. They moved out of California. They'd been in California since the 40s, I believe. Yeah, they they bounced around a little bit. Um, Did they? But yeah, I, I think I want to say they were overseas at one point. But um, I don't think the actual shop was. I don't though. know about the actual shop. Yeah. I know a lot of their yeah. production was in Japan for a while. Yeah, there. yeah. But yeah. as far as the Mark V production, I, mm-hmm. I know at one point it was in Japan, then at one point it was in Germany. I think yeah, as it well. Yeah, and then uh, now, so the Mark Vs are back uh, stateside production. Of course, they have their Vanguard models that are outsourced from the states, um, and then on the the three hundred seven, I believe, is is uh, is stateside manufactured. Is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Weatherby. Uh, makes great rifles. They have something for everybody in their lineup. They they they, uh, they shoot very well. Um, they have options from all the way up at the top end with a titanium action, a carbon barrel, and a carbon stock from Peak 44, mm-hmm. uh, which is their new sister company as of this last year or so now. Yep. Um, all the way down to a, an, an entry-level, whether it be Vanguard rifle, which tips the price point at about 600 bucks. Right. So they've got something in every price range for every hunting application. And of course, a lot of proprietary Weatherby cartridges, but they also chamber a lot of different rifles in in more mainstream cartridges as well, especially in the Vanguard lines. Yes, um, the Vanguard lines seem to have a lot more variety. They do, they um, do. which caters to people who might be, yeah. you know, and, wanting a particular cartridge. And the new three hundred seven rifles, um, the, the the three hundred seven range and the three hundred seven SQ two Alpine mm-hmm. are also chambered in a variety of mainstream cartridges as well as Weatherby proprietary cartridges. Right. Yeah. So. Yep. Anyway, there's something in there for everybody. Um, if you're in the market for a new rifle, we'd appreciate it if you'd check them out and let them know that we sent you. Absolutely. And uh, we have one more exciting announcement before we uh, dive into these listener questions. And that is that Mo and I have been working really hard in the last several weeks trying to uh, hammer out some, I, I think we'd announced it in a prior episode, but we've been working on the merch. Um, so if you guys are wanting to buy some Northern Hunter merch and really help us out and support the show, uh, by yeah. the time this episode airs, that will be live on the website. Yeah. Just put a deadline on myself. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's intense, but it will be live on the website. Has to be up. And, uh, and so you can go to the northernhunter.com. There will be a shop icon on the top row um, on the menu. And you can go there. We'll have uh, some hoodies, some hats, some shirts, uh, just kind of logo gear right now. Um, mm-hmm. But we're working on designs and everything like that um, with a couple people right now. So, uh, We'll have more variety soon, but we'd really appreciate it if you guys could go and, and buy some merch and support what we're doing here. Yeah. Hoodies, hats, and t-shirts, I believe. Yep. Yeah. So it'll, that, that's the start. Yep. And, and it's, it's going to be exciting. So I'm excited yeah. to see where it goes. And yeah. uh, we appreciate all of you guys that listen and, and support the show. Um, yeah, absolutely. So a couple of you have wrote, written in 
Um, we'll just start off with Dave here. So Dave says, first, I like to say I enjoy the podcast. I'm going to Alaska for my first caribou hunt in August. Mosquitoes seem to love my blood more than most people. What things can I do to help keep the nasty bug suckers from making the hunt miserable? Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Keep up the good work on the podcast and can't wait to hear some caribou tactics. Thanks for your time. Well, Dave, really appreciate you listening to the show and uh, writing into us. Um, yeah, mosquitoes are the state bird up here. <laughs> they are multiple and they are ginormous. Um, uh-huh. And depending on where you're caribou hunting, I'm just going to say, it seems like the farther north you go, the worse they get. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was just out off the um, the Seward Peninsula earlier this week and then uh, up there kind of towards Barrow. And man, <laughs> I got off the plane and those things just, it, it was a literal cloud yeah. everywhere around. And the wind would blow and it'd be nice and, and, and you know you wouldn't have to worry about it for a second. But the second the wind stopped, just a brief, Inter- intermission between gusts yeah they were right back to swarming yeah and uh and they are they're massive i mean you can see uh look up on videos and stuff like that and, and just see them flying around everywhere um a couple of things i've found that work really well is uh getting some good quality uh what we call bug dope mm-hmm. here in alaska so yeah. yeah uh just mosquito repellent um i know a lot of people have a have their feelings about deet uh, a lot of people <laughs> you know, uh, might not want it on their skin, might not want to, you know, be covering themselves in deep day after day if they're out on a, on a backpacking trip where they can't shower it off. Right. Um, I get that. Um, but I can tell you firsthand it does work and it yeah. works very well. Yeah. Um, the higher percentage of deet you can get, I don't anymore really like the hundred percent deet stuff, mm-hmm. um, because that stuff does tend to like have a, a, it's, it's a weird heating effect on my skin. Like I, I, I can feel it like, <laughs> Even this this last bear baiting season, I, I put some on my neck and on the back of my neck, I, it, it almost felt like a sunburn. Yeah. Um, so I didn't like that very much, but yeah. uh, they have a lot of stuff like off makes some that's like yeah. a 75% DEET and whatnot. So if you look for that, that'll work really well. Um, the important thing is covering yourself properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so around the neck, around the, the base of your shirt, mm-hmm. um, especially around your belt line, um, they will fly in just about anywhere they can get to oh, around, yeah. around your cuffs and your sleeves. Um, and make sure you're wearing, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, mosquito-proof clothing. Yes. Uh, the mosquitoes up here will bite you through your blue jeans. Um, <laughs> they are relentless. They, they're, it, it, it blows my mind still. Um, are we talking about like them tight-fitting jeans? Or are we talking about like Carhartt work pants? <laughs> like these ones I'm wearing. Like, like so tight-fitting like, jeans. No, these are... <laughs> It's like boot cuts, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. I, I know. Um, we have to start doing the video podcast soon, just so I can like, I can prove that. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> for the podcast record, James is wearing tight fitting jeans. <laughs> um, but no, so wearing clothing that that is a little bit denser. Um, yeah, it helps out a lot. Maybe layering up a little bit. Um, yeah. Typically, like a long sleeve shirt helps. Mm-hmm. Um, I've found that those, um, uh, what, what are they called? The, the S rated fishing yes. shirts, the long yep. sleeve ones. Yep. Um, those tend to work to keep them act as like an initial barrier. Just mm-hmm. so you can 
you're still going to have to swipe them away, but it right. kind of keeps them off you for just long enough. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I I would say as far as hunting goes, um, a lot of guys like to wear like a light merino base layer. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those ultralight merino base layer tops are not bug. Yeah, and uh, you know, obviously having your hood up is going to help a lot, keep them off, keeping them off of your neck, especially, and and off the back of your head and around your ears and whatnot. But around the sleeves and the shoulders and the back, where it's going to be more taut. Um, uh, um, tighter fitting up against your body, mm-hmm. they will bite right through that and you'll be battling that the whole time and you'll have to add another layer to that. So going with a little bit heavier weight outer layer, if you're just wearing like a merino or a synthetic outer layer, um, even like that Sitka um, core lightweight hoodie, mm-hmm. I wore that a lot during bear baiting this year and the bugs can bite through it. They don't do very often, um, partially because I've got that just covered in bug dope mm-hmm. but after i sweated that off and it kind of or, or or if it rained and it kind of got washed off a little bit here and there um or if i didn't respray it every time i walked into the stand right right um they would bite through that occasionally so um something a little bit thicker a little bit less um porous uh, m- might not be the right term but something a little bit heavier weight like a merino 120 weight or mm-hmm. up would be a good idea um the stone glacier synthetic base layer um a half zip up with a little hood mm-hmm. they don't bite through that that's a little bit thicker material than the than the sitka core lightweight hoodie right and the bugs can't bite through that at least that i've had experience with so far yeah. not saying that they couldn't but uh i i haven't had an issue with it <laughs> um anything's possible with alaskan mosquitoes <laughs> but i i know we've mentioned before having a head net i've always got yeah. a bug net in my bino harness mm-hmm. um if i'm out hunting if I'm at the bear bait, then it's in my cargo pants pocket. Um, yeah. You know, I, I something else to consider too is if you're wearing ultra light, stretchy um, hunting pants that that are made out of a lightweight, um, stretchy fabric. Um, they can bite through some of those areas. They can. Um, this yeah. spring, I, I know I talked in an earlier podcast. Uh, possibly, I, I might have mentioned this, but I, I wore a pair of Fial Raven. You did, yeah, um, I remember that. Keb pants mm-hmm. um, for the majority of my spring um, coastal bear guiding this spring here. Um, so I, I spent about five weeks in that same pair of pants. And they're really nice because they, they have some durable, um, tough patches on, uh, throughout the pant that are, that are strategically placed there for the high wear areas. But the rest of the pant is a real lightweight, stretchy fabric that breathes very well. Mm. Well... That's not bug proof. So just something to keep in mind, you know, in, in, uh, in some of the crotch areas on the pant and then on the inseam of the thighs, it's that yep. stretchy material. They can bite through that. So, yeah. you know, if you're really that concerned about it, maybe pick a little bit heavier pair of pants, yeah. um, something like the Stone Glacier de Havilland pant. They're not going to bite through that. I think even the Havilland light pant mm-hmm. or the 206 pant, they won't bite through. And those are all Stone Glacier pants. If you want to go with a different brand, that's totally fine. But that's just kind of uh, what I've gone with as of late. Right. But now there are companies that make actually specifically like mosquito proof. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like hoodies and whatnot. Yeah. They actually have a built in bug net on the hood. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much I would recommend that on a hunt. Yeah. Um, it might not be terrible if you're just, if you can find one that ha- that's the right color, it's right. not going to stand out like a sore thumb right. on the side of the hill. Right. Or, uh, you know, and to use maybe when you're just glassing or something like mm-hmm. that might not be the worst thing in the world. Right. 
Um, but kind of along those lines, when you're using a bug net, make sure you use something to keep it off your face. Yeah, put it um, over your ball cap. Yep, over your ball cap. Or sometimes they come with the little little wire mm-hmm. uh, uh, brim around them. Yeah. And, uh, and that helps a lot. Yeah. If you are of the mindset where you don't like DEET and you don't like traditional bug dope. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, my wife is one of those. You yeah. know, she, she doesn't like that stuff. Um, makes me, you know, take a nice long shower every time I come back from the bear bait for, I mean, multiple reasons, but still, you know, bug dope <laughs> is a big one. Um, but uh, there are certain uh, scents and oils and whatnot that you can put on your skin that will uh, keep bugs off of you. Um, yeah. Lavender's a big one. Uh, bugs don't like lavender. Um, that's kind of a, a, a big, that's one of the main ones uh, companies will go with when they're trying to make more natural bug repellents. Mm-hmm. Uh, vanilla is another one. Uh, if you can get oh, like a really? vanilla oil, yeah. Uh, mosquitoes don't like vanilla. Interesting. Um, I don't know what's wrong with them, but they don't like it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I love vanilla. I love vanilla. Especially <laughs> in French toast. Oh, Dude, boy. Vanilla bean ice cream is yeah. my favorite. Yeah. It's like, got to be the vanilla bean, but it's hard uh, to beat. Yeah. You can't beat it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, there are options. I will just be straight up honest with you, though. They're not going to work as good. Yeah. And when you're in the back country of Alaska <laughs> on a hunt and you cannot escape these things, yeah. um, it's not really your best option. Um, another detail is, I know we've mentioned, um, uh, what are the thermocells? We've mentioned thermocells on the show before. Oh, yeah. Those are great options provided you're not in a windy area. Right. Um, they don't work well when hiking mm-hmm. um, because... For anybody that doesn't know, it's a it's a plastic housing that that holds a flame, a uh, little tiny flame inside of it that heats up a wafer, and that wafer kind of sets off like a. I just killed a mosquito right here. <laughs> Don't just killed a mosquito in the studio. <laughs> anyway, uh, but so that wafer puts off a vapor. Basically, it looks like a little smoke cloud, and that is the mosquito repellent. It's right. supposed to give you like a ten foot radius or fifteen mm-hmm. foot radius, whatever you adver- they advertise. Yeah, expect half of that, but. Um, even in the best of conditions, but that's, it, it's a stagnant system. So mm-hmm. if you're say camping down in a lower part of the, of a valley where you don't get a lot of wind, mm-hmm. you could use it in camp. Oh yeah. You know, you, you could have it sitting next to you while you're, while you're hanging out. Sure. Um, but if you're on like a ridge and you're glassing and there's wind blowing and stuff like that, one, you're probably not going to have to worry about the mosquitoes too much cause they don't do well in the wind, but mm-hmm. Anywhere there's a breeze that mm-hmm. can blow that smoke away or that yeah. wafer, what, um, yeah. vapor, whatever it is, right. um, then it's not going to be effective. Right. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah. But, ha- having a thermosil can be good, but just understand its limitations. And a lot of it, honestly, is just mental toughness. Yeah. You just kind of got to accept <laughs> yep. that the mosquitoes are a part of life yep. um, when you're up here. They're going to be a part of your hunt. They're going to be buzzing around your face. You're yep. going to be hearing them just kind of mentally prepare yourself for that is a big big thing as well yeah absolutely uh the next question we got here is from ed ed wrote in um uh here last week or so uh, maybe by the time this airs a couple weeks ago now he was listening to an older episode we had from it looks like february i I think he said he says gentlemen great show and no it's not too long and the banter is great well i'm glad you uh glad you (laughs) like the show ed and that you're enjoying our somewhat longer format. Uh, we kind of go back and forth. This one might not be quite uh, as long as the rest of them are. Mm. Uh, he goes on to say, reference your suggestion on a do-all bullet for a seven mag and the terminal ascent in your late February podcast. 
I have loaded the 200 grain in my 300 wind mag and have jugged them. Mm-hmm. It penetrated eight one-gallon jugs at 30 yards, retained 175 grains, and expanded to 0.708 inch. I get 29.78 foot per second average, chronoed out of my Nosler M21, which is a 24-inch, 1-in-10 twist shilling barrel. I also get sub 0.5-inch groups at 100 yards with near max charge of Reloader 26. So don't give up on them out of your 7 mag. The 200 grain has a 0.608 G1 and a 304 G7, and that's a good hammer at distance. Um, Ed, I appreciate you writing in the show with that suggestion. Um, But uh, since the time of that recording, of course, um, obviously we mentioned earlier in the show that we are working with hammer bullets Mm -hmm. um, pretty exclusively here at the podcast. Um, We all do our best to to shoot hammers when possible. Yeah. and uh, obviously, all of that is reloading. Now, yeah. for a factory load option, if you're just to walk into Sportsman's Warehouse in Fairbanks, for us anyway, um, we cannot buy hammer bullets the counter right. or in factory ammo. Um, mm-hmm. I have not seen any Weatherby ammo loaded with hammers just yet show up in Fairbanks. I'm sure that's coming, um, but we haven't seen it just yet. And all of the other ammunition manufacturers that hammer does work with do not supply sportsmen's up here in Fairbanks mm-hmm. or any of our local um, sporting goods shops. Right. So for a factory ammo load, if you cannot shoot hammers, um, the terminal ascent is not a bad way to go. Oh, no, not at all. I think they are a and, good bullet, um, but just for just for what we're doing at this time, um, we're not going to tinker with them yeah. um, just right now, but there's nothing wrong with saying that... Uh, for a factory loaded option, and, and I think Federal has those available for reloading now. They too. do. Um, they they have them in a lot of different calibers. Um, That's good. And I, and I will I will say for a for a lead core bullet, because um, the terminal sense are bonded. Mm-hmm. Um, that is phenomenal performance. Yeah, maintaining 175 grains out of 200. Yeah. After full expansion and mm-hmm. penetrating eight water jugs, yeah, is amazing. That's and he got great weight retention. And he got over double double caliber. Yeah, I was going to say getting to point seven oh eight is yeah. more than double caliber, which yeah. is that's what you want, right? You know, in, in a lead core bullet, you're looking for that wide expansion, right? Um, and that and that weight retention, right? When you can combine those two things, you're going to get good penetration and really good uh, wound channels, right? Um. And the stabilization that he's able to get, I mean, a half-inch group at 100 yards, that's not easy to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to have the right gun, the right load. You have to know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so I applaud you, sir, on that. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. Like, we're tinkering with hammer bullets um, for a multitude of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I like hammers because of the technology behind them and the consistency that they, that they give. Um, it's a very different technology, though. You know, with a hammer right. bullet, the front of that, that bullet, the nose of the bullet completely falls off yeah. as soon as it hits the animal. It, it shrapnels and it, st- it sends shrapnel through the, the lungs and through, I mean, the, the muscles and whatever it gets in its way. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, it leaves a nice flat front on that shank mm-hmm. and penetrates because depending on which model you'll get, you're almost guaranteed 70 to 90% weight retention. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a very different technology as far as bullets go. Yeah. But, um, again, if you're not a, a, a seasoned reloader or mm-hmm. even have the ability to reload, right, and you're not able to afford some of these custom ammo manufacturers that are loading hammer bullets now, yeah, because if you go to like Choice Ammo or Hender Shots or anything like that, 
Right. You can get hammer bullets loaded in in a multitude of cartridges, but that stuff's not cheap. Right. Um, and, and it also depends if they'll even ship to where you live, right, because if exactly. you live in Alaska, you can't order it, ammo through the mail. Exactly. So, um, you know, if, if you're pretty much stuck to what's on the shelf at your, like you said, your local sportsman or something like that, um, mm -hmm. I, I would definitely think that's a, that's a great option. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um absolutely. But yeah, so, thanks for writing to the show, Ed. Um, if you want to hit the next one. Yeah. So let's look here. This is from Lane. Ah, so Lane writes into the show. Man, that sounds like a handsome dude. Just going to say that. <laughs> uh, you better give some backstory now. So Lane is a good buddy of mine. Um, we worked together for a time and, and hang, hung out. He actually was at my wedding. Um, yeah. So thank you, Lane, for writing in. Uh, I, uh, I will be reaching out to you soon if I haven't already by the time this airs. Because um, it has been a while since we talked, but we don't, we don't live near each other. So. Uh, but Lane writes into the show and he says, I'm looking into getting a rifle for deer hunting um what's your opinion on a good rifle and he does say specifically for kansas yeah um so a little bit different of a question for for this this show but yeah. i i feel like the best setup i would go with for a kansas deer rifle um kind of depends on which part of the state i'm hunting mm. um if i'm going to be hunting you know, more in that south southeastern part, um, which is kind of more where I'm from. There's not a lot of long range shooting to do. Um, yeah, there there could be, but a lot of it's going to be the small parcels of pu public land that is available, and or you're able to find a field that you can hunt. Uh huh. Now those fields can be fairly large, but in in a lot of cases you're not going to be shooting over, I'd say, 300 yards. Um, yeah. in, in most situations. Now in western Kansas. There are areas that you can get to where you have a lot more uh, large properties, mm -hmm. larger farms, larger um, areas to hunt. There's a lot of uh, outfits that were run out of those areas too. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of got to figure out if you're going to be, if you're trying to get into the longer range or if you're trying to do more tree stand close range hunting. Yeah. Um, but a big thing to remember is that a whitetail is not necessarily a hard thing to kill. Right. Um, they're not huge. They're not the toughest animal in the world. They're tougher than you might think, but they're not the toughest animal in the world. Yeah. And you really want to focus on the harvest. Mm -hmm. You really want to focus on not having too much overkill. Yeah. You'll see people uh, running around with like 300 rums. Yeah. You know, Remington Ultra, Ultra Mags. Mm -hmm. And that, <laughs> there is no world in which you need that for, no. a, for a deer. No. Um, my recommendation would actually be for that area, unless you're trying to get a do-all rifle to go out of state, something short action mm -hmm. and 30 cal or lower. Yeah. Um, so 308 is a good option. Um, you, 30 out six works fine if you wanted to go with a long action, but you really don't even need a 30 out six. Yeah. Um, if you're really trying to do just tree stand hunting, um, let's say um, if, if you were able to find some property to, to hunt out of a tree stand um, and all of your shots are going to be you know, 200 or less, honestly, you can do it with a 243. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so you, you can get something that's really affordable to feed mm -hmm. that doesn't have a lot of it, uh, cost for ammunition. Right. That is still going to be, have good terminal performance out to, we'll just say three to 400 yards, just in case it's all the way on the other side of the field. Yeah. Um, but realistically, man, I mean, two to 300 is, is, is where most of those shots take place. Yeah. Um, if not closer than that. Yeah. I was going to say probably 150 or less. Yeah. So, yeah. um, 
you know, I, I would stick with something like a 308 mm-hmm. um, or even some of these newer 6.5s, like a 6.5 PRC. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if that'll be more than plenty mm-hmm. for, for a deer. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, but look for something that's obviously going to be quality, going to be accurate. Um, you know, we, we've talked about the Weatherby Vanguards. Those yeah. are a great option. Um, mm-hmm. You can get into those pretty affordably. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you want to go up to the higher, the Mark 5s, that's a great option too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you'd mentioned in another art or in another podcast, like Tikas. Yeah. Um, Tikas are a good budget option to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these are going to be light enough to carry around with you. Yeah. Um, and accurate. Yeah. Um, th- and those are my two, my two recommendations. If I was to recommend rifles to anybody. Yeah. I, I, I would say as far as cartridge selection goes, I, I would definitely err on the small side. Now, yeah. with that being said, the, 30-06 is like the all-American do-all cartridge, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's the popular thing is you can hunt anything in North America with a 30-06. That is totally true. But if you're only going to be hunting whitetail deer in, in, uh, in that part of the country, down in Kansas way, um, personally, I would go smaller than a 30-06. Yeah. I would go 308, 7mm 08, mm-hmm. 6.5 Creedmoor, um, seven mm eight would be another really good one. Yeah. Um, even like a two seventy Winchester would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, two seventy short mag. Although you're gonna have a really hard time finding ammo for that. Um, even like the uh, some of the new straight wall cartridges um, that are legal to hunt with in a lot of the straight wall r- restricted uh, deer yeah. hunting states. Um, you can get like a three fifty Legend mm-hmm. or a. Uh, do they have the four hundred Legend now? It's four fifty. Uh, Bushmaster. No, that they had a new four hundred something. Oh, do they really? Yeah, I haven't checked yeah, into that. It's it's a four hundred something or other. Yeah. Um. Obviously, I need to do some more research before <laughs> recommending that. But the, uh, the, some of those cartridges that have been made by Winchester here in the last few years, the three hundred and fifty is is definitely one of the more popular ones. Mm-hmm. Um. And that that gives you a bit more um, um versatility. You, you can shoot past fifty or seventy five yards with it, whereas right. a lot of old straight cartridges. Straight wall cartridges um, were a little bit more range limited. Mm-hmm. That 350 is is a nice balance. You get a little bit more velocity out of it. You can hand load for it pretty easily. It's a very mild recoiling cartridge. It, yeah. it's, it's by no means a magnum performing caliber either. Um, but for something mainstream that you'll be able to find easily, 708, 308, 270, 30-06, or I I know, I hate hate (laughs) saying it, but but it's totally true, and it's completely fine. (laughs) 6.5 Creedmoor would be a great option for it. It it, it will do fine on deer. Because that's more what it's kind of designed for. It'll do fantastic on deer. Yeah. Yeah, It'll be perfect for that. Um, And if you really want to, um, I I don't know if you said it already, but um, for a lot of those closer range shots, if that's the situation you're going to end up in, really can't beat an old 30-30. Yeah. Um, 30, yeah. 30 does great. It's not going to damage too much meat. It's right. going to be plenty accurate. Um, yeah. your range is going to be limited. You're not really going to want to shoot past that 200 yard, 300 yard mark. Yeah. Um, the, the just new, because it putters out so fast. Right. It does. And it, and it's not a magnum performing cartridge. Yeah. Um, but if you're going to be mostly hunting, there is some, uh, treed areas mm-hmm. in Kansas. They're not heavy forest or anything like that, right. but, um, but you can get up close to deer mm-hmm. in, in some of those areas. And if that's more the, the area you're going to be hunting, um, then, you know, 30-30 will be just fine. Yeah, so. absolutely. I know that new Marlin th- uh, 336 looks yeah. like a pretty slick deer rifle. I, I am really trying to get my hands on one of those mm-hmm. because from everything I've heard about it, it's, it's the best one they've made yet. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just everybody loves them. Unfortunately, yeah. 
they want to charge like four times what they're worth. But um, <laughs> well, I mean, compared better, to better materials, <sighs> better. I am not going to talk any smack about them because I know that they did a very good job yeah. at, at engineering it. Better manufacturing. But it's still a lever gun. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. not a, it's not an, like a, a super precision bolt gun. It's not, and it's not actually uh, Ruger, you know, Ruger Marlin that's, that's right. uh, charging that rate. If you can find one in a store, you're going to pay a, a decent rate for today's gun prices. Right. It's more everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> it's more if you go to like gunbroker.com or something like that because yeah. you can't find one on the shelf. Exactly. You're going to be paying two grand for a lever gun. And at, nobody should be doing that if you right. ask me. Yeah. Unless it's more of a collector, collector piece for you. Right. Or it's right. just an old 1894 yeah, or something. And, and you have that 2000 just sitting around, you know, yeah. it's not going to hurt you at all. But for the functionality you're going to get out of it, if you're looking for a hunting rifle, yeah. don't, don't, don't go that route. Yeah. It's so not <laughs> worth it. You can get into such a better rifle for that amount of money. Um, <laughs> but Lane, uh, thank you, buddy, for writing into the show. I uh, hope you and the family are doing well, and I look forward to talking to you more. We'll, we'll talk more specifics when I, when I get a hold of you. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's uh, go ahead and take a quick break here, and then we'll come back and hit our last few questions and suggestions and jump into our main topic. I like it. Hammer Bullets produces what we at the Northern Hunter consider to be the most premium and best working monolithic bullets on the market today. These bullets are easy to load, extremely accurate, and best of all, they're always in stock and ready to ship. The guys at Hammer designed them so that after penetrating the hide of an animal, it sheds its petals, initiating a massive energy dump while retaining the rear shank for maximum penetration. These bullets are built with 100% focus on how they perform on game, and their proprietary designs produce great BCs with specialized pressure grooves for amazing inherent accuracy and speed. They have a minimum expansion velocity of 1,800 feet per second, which allows for long-range shots, but with no maximum velocity, making them perfect for every cartridge from your granddaddy's old 3030 to the high-velocity round like the Weatherby 3378 without having to worry about your bullet failing. To view their expansive selection and find the perfect match for your hunting needs, go to hammerbullets.com and use discount code THENORTHERNHUNTER to drop the hammer on your next adventure. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's talk about these last few suggestions here. We got an email from a good friend of ours, Thomas. He's mm -hmm. written into the show before. We've talked about some of his suggestions in the past. Um, in relation to our previous episodes uh, here a few weeks back, we talked about entry-level gear for beginning hunters, and he had a few really good suggestions that I thought were worthy of bringing up in the show. Um, one of them was, he says, if you're forced to go with a pack frame, buy straps from Kafaru or Barney's and make a simple pack frame that isn't torture with weight. While frames are great for moose hunting, many people start sheep hunting with an internal backpack like a Kelty or even a Gregory or Osprey designs. They are not bad ways to start. Mm -hmm. um, he's absolutely right there. I hunted, uh, I, I think the better part of a year or two when I was first starting as a teenager um, with an old Kelty internal frame, just like a big hiker's pack. Mm. I, I, I don't remember exactly what the capacity was. It was somewhere around 6,000 cubic inches. It was enough that I could fit a few days worth of gear and a camp in there and then go bear hunting in the mountains for a few days at a time. It did the job fine. Mm -hmm. They're not going to carry heavy weight as well as a pack frame will when you get north of that 80 pound range, at least in my opinion, with the ones that I've used. Um, but that being said, a lot of folks aren't going to want to carry out more than 80 or 90 pounds at a time. So if you're going to make two trips anyway, then that might not be a bad way to go. 
especially yeah. in the mindset of like a sheep hunting type of a backpack situation. That is going to be a lot more comfortable to carry days and days and days on end. That is very true. Um, the next thing he suggested was uh, simple is best when it comes to guns. A Vanguard with a relatively simple scope is a great way to start. Four power and six power fixed loopholed M8s and M7s in weaver style bases and rings are hard to beat for their simplicity. Mm. Um, that's a great suggestion. I know we talked about scopes as well in, that, in, in one of those episodes, um, kind of suggesting the VX freedoms from Loophole. Mm -hmm. um, but we talked about some of the custom dial systems that they have available and how the VX freedoms do not have a locking turret design. Right. His suggestion is even more simple than not even having a turret. His suggestion is you're already limiting yourself to range. You're mm -hmm. already limiting yourself with an entry-level cartridge like a 270 or an .06 that's not going to be a long-range gun anyway. Yeah. So simpler is better, and it's more affordable in the long run as well. Um, you can get to a fixed four-power loophole scope or a fixed six-power, whichever one you decide to go with. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind your field of view and light gathering is going to be less as you go up in magnification between those two powers there. But there is no... Um, that you don't have to give any thought to is my scope zoomed in too much when you pull your rifle up. You mm -hmm. know it's always going to be at whatever power it is, right? Um, and also you don't ever have to dial with it. It's a capped turret, old fashioned, you know, original what scope started out as um, mm -hmm. type of a design. And while there is less to go wrong, you don't have as much versatility with it. Yeah. So, um, so like with a two seventy or a not six, you'll zero for two hundred yards. No, you're holdover for 300, and that's your max right. distance, and you don't shoot past that. So there's a, there's a concept um, when zeroing mm -hmm. um, for specifically, well, really, you can utilize it for any scope, but specifically for, or especially, I should say, especially for fixed power scopes. Mm -hmm. Because as you say, you are at a, at a specific disadvantage. Yeah. Um, and it's called your maximum point blank range. Right. And your maximum point blank range is whatever the understanding the ranges where you can hold on target mm -hmm. and hit within an acceptable distance up or down of Your the kill of the kill, kill zone. zone right so typically exactly. it's around four inches yeah um and so if you zero let's say at 200 yards right then ideally you would want your 100 yard or less shot to be no more than four inches above that right um and and people will tailor it even farther to where they'll put their zero not necessarily at 200 but maybe at 180 mm -hmm. because that brings that that arch down at the closer ranges mm -hmm. and then you you use your ballistic calculator and you find out where it drops below that point mm -hmm. and if you don't want to do kentucky windage that's your kill zone right you know whatever that ends up being whether it's 320 yards you know 300 and 72 yards whatever right. that ends up being that's your cutoff right that's where you know you can hold the crosshairs on an animal and right. you will hit the lungs yeah you know it might not be exactly where the crosshairs are holding but it's going to be within that maximum point blank range mm -hmm. um and that's a good option yeah. and you know the, another benefit to uh fixed power scopes in addition to intentionally limiting yourself mm -hmm. Because you really don't want to be taking your first animal at five, six hundred yards. No, I mean, it, one, you don't get the experience, uh, but two, there's so much room for error in there yeah. that when you don't have that calmness of yeah. mind in the situation, right, um, you're really taking a risk mm -hmm. of either a complete miss, which is your best case scenario there, yeah, um, outside of a clean kill, but 
or wounding that animal, right? Gutting it or hitting it in a in a you know, the, the rear limbs, anything like that, because it doesn't take at extended yardages. It doesn't take much of a, a flinch or much of a shake if you got buck fever or something like that, or a crosswind that you don't read, right? If you don't know how to read the wind and adjust for it, um, right. so that is a great feature. But for simplicity's sake, you're going to get a lot better clarity mm-hmm. out of a uh, a fixed power due to the fact that there's just less moving parts there's less components there's a lot less mirrors um and lenses in there so a lot better clarity when compared to budget level scopes that have magnification budget level variable scopes right um exactly Exactly. of the same similar price range right so definitely a good option to look into there yeah the last thing he said i found pretty entertaining um he said (laughs) make your wife super comfortable if you take her with you some hunting trips can turn downright expensive a divorce runs on average about 250, 250K in modern days. <laughs> That's solid advice, Thomas. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Um, all three of us here at the show are married. And uh, when we do take our wives out hunting with us, we do our dead level best. I, I always shake my head um, because I find myself bringing things that normally I would never even consider bringing (laughs) if it was just myself on a hunt, but I'm going to bring one or two extra things that I know are going to make her a little bit more comfortable Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, just try to give her a good experience. uh, And and just to clarify, like my wife is tough as nails when it comes to hunting. She's fine. She's, she's grown up hunting and fishing in Alaska. She's killed more bears with her bow than most grown men have with Mm -hmm. a rifle. Um, that, 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 that I know. And, uh, anyway, so yeah, she's, she's not, uh, she's not a wimp, but, uh, you know, women like different creature comforts than yeah. us guys do. I can go days and days on end without brushing my teeth. Um, <laughs> my wife will not. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I, I found myself brushing my teeth more often when I'm hunting with my wife. So, <laughs> but yeah, try to make your uh, try to make your wife comfortable, and and I think that goes for your kids as well. You know, oh if, yeah, if you're hunting, absolutely. if you're hunting with kids, whether they're your own or whether they're your friends or family friends or whatever, um, you know that, that that's something to consider too. I, I, the experience is the most important part for them, and you don't want to have it be so real and miserable like mm-hmm. you can put up with that they're going to start hating it. Right. You want them to enjoy it and want to keep coming back. So yeah. bring a few things for them that you might not normally bring. Have a heart, you know, yeah. uh, don't be, don't, don't try to John Wayne everything and, uh, <laughs> and just go hardcore <laughs> tough as nails. But no, those are, those are all good points, Thomas. And, and he mentioned a lot of other things that we don't have time to get into today, but those are just a few points that I thought would, uh, be yeah. beneficial to include uh, just because we've been on the topic uh, the last few weeks of entry-level gear for, for mm-hmm. beginning hunters in Alaska, especially. But a lot of this applies to hunters out west as well, you know, kind of the northwest of the states, yeah. Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Washington, Oregon, that part of the country that there is a lot of crossover as far as methodology and weather conditions that we'll encounter up here right. in our spring and summer and fall seasons. So, right. It's all pertinent information, and if uh, if there's something, again, I know we already said this a few weeks ago, but uh, if there's something that we miss that you think should be included in, in some of those lists, um, again, just write us into the show just like these folks did. Mm-hmm. Um, James mentioned the emails earlier in the episode, and we'd love to hear your input on any of that. Yeah. So I will say one thing before we dive into the main topic, and that is I highly encourage, if you are into hunting, take your family hunting Absolutely. Don't look at it as just a, a solo experience or right. a guy's trip. Mm-hmm. Um, 
all the time. Not yeah. saying those things aren't good and 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 shouldn't happen, but right. at least a couple times a year, try to get your family out there with you. Uh, one, it's just a good time, but two, um, trying to pass on the hunting knowledge that you have mm-hmm. it is a big thing these days. I think we touched on that in in the episode with Ryan, where yeah. you know it's kind of seems like that that generational knowledge, the passing down, is, is kind of starting to come to an end. You yeah. know, people are. And I, I understand, especially, you know, with the economy, the way it is these days, you've got, you know, both parents working in most situations, you've right. got, you know, there's a lot of bills to be paid, you know, mm-hmm. if you can make it out to hunt, it's usually just a quick trip, you mm-hmm. know, for most parents. Yeah. Um, and, but, but, you know, when kids get out there and enjoy the woods yeah. at a young age yeah. and you do add those, those slight creature comforts, we're not saying bring the iPads and the pillows and, and, and you know, build them a living room in the tent, but you know, yeah. as long as they're entertained and they're having a good time. Yeah. Um, but giving them an experience that they enjoy and, and making it so that they also get that passion and yeah. continue it is not only important for them because I mean, that's, you know, if you ask any of us, that's the best way yeah. to spend your life. If they, grow up with a you know a hunting addiction they're right not going to have money for other addictions um but (laughs) um, but you know it's also important to make sure that as hunters we're not letting our own kind you know Mm -hmm. die out yeah um because the hunting the hunting community and we've said this before on the show it's under attack you know there's always there's constantly pushes to to limit hunting opportunities, to limit hunting methods, to limit, you know, all this stuff for, for these opportunities for people. Mm-hmm. And if we don't keep people involved, mm-hmm. then it's, it's just going to go away eventually, yeah. you know? Yeah, I um, agree. And so it's very important to keep doing that. Yeah. I, I've heard it put like this, any given way of life is only two generations away from extinction yep. or completely changing to a new way. Yeah. And if we're not careful, and as hunters, it's our job, number one, to educate our own families, or if you don't have kids of your own, um, getting involved in hunter education programs. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, our outreach and education is through this podcast and through the Northern Hunter. Um, but for you, as a parent, that's for your kids, and that's for um, your local outreach groups. Um, a, a, a lot of fish and game agencies will allow you to volunteer and you can get involved with Hunter's Ed for kids mm-hmm. and help to teach and nurture that next generation um, in the right way, mm-hmm. respectfully, um, not to be a, um, a glory hunter. Not that trophy hunting is wrong in and of itself, but the kind of the, the mentality that just comes with that, there are a lot of people that don't understand hunting that just think we're out there to go out, kill a moose, cut the antlers off, and come home. Right. They don't see our way of life. And part of that falls on us for not educating the masses. Yeah. I don't think that everybody has to hunt. Not, no. every, not everybody wants to hunt. Not everybody should hunt. That's my opinion. Yeah. You, you might think otherwise, but I don't think everybody is a hunter. No. But not everybody has to be of the polar opposite mindset that not only do I not hunt, but I don't want you to hunt. Right. There are, there are a lot of folks I know that don't hunt, not because they think it's wrong, but it's just not their way of life. And they're perfectly okay with me hunting because they understand, because I've explained to them why I do what I do. Yeah. And they're okay with that. But that's all education on some level or another. Well, and and I know a lot of people that have struggled with hunting and, 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 you know, not hunting. Mm Mm-hmm. Not because of any moral dilemma with it, but simply because 
of the educational factor because yeah. they didn't grow up with hunters. They didn't right. grow up around the hunting community yeah. and they don't know, you know, what those first baby steps are to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and exposing people to that at a young age yeah. at least gives them the opportunity to explore it further. Yeah. If they don't choose to go into that lifestyle and they just decide it's not for them and they don't like it, yeah. obviously don't force them to do it. Right. Right. But give them the opportunity to learn if it's something you're also passionate yeah. about. So yeah, absolutely. But well, something that you could take your kids on sometimes <laughs> would be a guided hunt. <laughs> yeah, it, it can be. It's kind of a spendy way to get them involved in the outdoors. But uh. <laughs> Right. Actually, uh, uh, one of our, our very first guests, I believe, just took his kid on a, uh, on, yeah. on a guided hunt. Yeah. Uh, Clint Adams. Yeah, Clint yeah. Adams brought his, uh, his, brought son, his son out yep. yeah, to Alaska and uh, yep. he killed a black bear, was it? Yeah, it was a black bear. Mm-hmm. Nice one, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very good job. Like Congratulations good- there. Yeah, they had a good trip. And, uh, but yeah, so guided hunts in Alaska is obviously probably the most common way people get up here to hunt, I would say. For, for non-residents. Um, For non-residents. Yeah. Um, there is, there is a lot of DIY opportunity, but I feel like, yeah, a lot of that is kind of more of the hardcore people coming up to do, to do what they already know how to do. Um, I think a lot of people are, are reaching out into the commercial services of of guides and, and, at least transporters or something like that. Right. Um, and today we're going to talk about what to expect when you're coming up on that. So yeah, when you are looking at coming up for your very first trip, if you've never experienced this before, Mm -hmm. Dalton has been to a lot of these camps. (laughs) He's going to tell you what to expect. Yeah, definitely not all of them. (laughs) No, not all. (laughs) I've, I've worked for a few different outfitters and, uh, but you know, being involved on, on the guiding side of things, uh, has, has opened my eyes to a lot of different, um, challenges that hunters face and mm-hmm. as, as far as non-residents coming up here. And I, I've always been surprised at the, at the shock factor that, that clients have when they get up here, mm-hmm. because it's just a completely different world. Yeah. Um, even the travel, they, they all say, man, it feels like I'm traveling out of the country mm-hmm. because it's just not the same as the lower 48. Um, so yeah, that, that, there, there are a lot of things that, that I feel like, um, you know, questions that I've heard from clients over the years and, and commonly um, uh, misunderstood things and people that show up with too much of one thing or not enough of one thing, or they don't understand how a guided hunt is going to operate. Mm-hmm. And you have to adjust your mindset when you get there because you thought it was going to be like this and it's not. And uh, outfitters are busy, man. Um, if you book a hunt in Alaska with an outfitter, um, chances are they're probably too busy to answer every single uh, minor question that you have. Some of them are better at that than others. Um, but there are just a few things that we jotted down here that we'll we'll burn through today. We'll try not to keep this one uh, um, too terribly long, but uh, yeah. just to kind of go through the points here, yeah. um, some some extra important things that you need to consider when you're coming up here. Some of it's the experience, some of it's what to expect, some of it's what to and not to bring. Mm-hmm. This is not going to be a comprehensive gear breakdown. We will <laughs> definitely talk about several gear items that you should or shouldn't bring, Right, kind of the big ones that your guide may or may not have that mm-hmm. you may or may not should bring as um as your own if yeah. you have it and you trust it um but most of your personal gear we're not going to get into all that you know guns right. and optics and clothes and all things we've like covered that. a lot of that in other episodes yeah that there's there's plenty of that information in previous episodes and the other thing to remember too is that a lot of this may be subjective yes simply because different outfitters will operate differently a lot of in it different areas some of them yeah. will have 
maybe additional features to their hunt yeah. or you know transport options or something mm-hmm. like that maybe other things included in the hunt package that, that yeah. certain ones aren't but more of a general yeah kind of what to expect right generally speaking kind of what, my mindset in in in, in just uh, coming up with some of these questions that that uh, that came to mind for myself is this shouldn't necessarily be your hard and fast rule of what to do and what not to do and what to expect but more of an idea to give you questions to ask your outfitter. Mm-hmm. Hey, do you have this or should I bring this or are we going to be doing this, right? And kind of get an idea so that you can approach the outfitter or your personal guide if, if you're in contact with the actual guide that's going to be guiding your hunt. Right. Because a lot of times you're booking with an outfitter and then he has assistant guides that work for him that will conduct the hunt with you. And you're not going to actually hunt with the guy that you book with. Yeah. Or if you book through a booking agency, you might not talk to anybody except the booking agent. And then it's all third party at that point. Yeah. Even then, it's farther removed than even talking to the outfitter. So these are just some questions that uh, that I came up with from personal experiences and from other guides that, that I've heard that have encountered some of these problems over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them are problems, but just uh, situations that you may or may not encounter. All right, folks, we all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, go to StealthyHunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. So let's start with the, looks like the first two involve the first stages of any guided hunt, which is simply getting to Alaska. Yeah. So why don't you go into a little bit about that? Well, um, there are several airline operators that uh, that fly into Alaska, obviously. There are many different carriers. Um, I recommend folks to fly Alaska Airlines whenever possible. The number one reason for that is they have been, um, at least up to this point, they have been the most accommodating airline service for hunters and outdoorsmen. Mm-hmm. That's flying with firearms. That's flying home with meat and trophies. Right. Um, you can use Alaska Airlines cargo to fly home with as, as long as you have an account, um, a known shipper account to fly home. Um, you can ship meat and trophy home frozen. You don't mm-hmm. have to worry about it thawing out on a cooler to fly on as a checked on bag. Yeah. And then wonder if all your meat's spoiled when you get home, however much meat you choose to bring home, that's up to you. Um, Pretty decent but, rates too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, think, I, I think it used to be that for a Club 49 Alaska Airlines member, you could get the first 100 pounds of Alaska Airlines cargo for 10 bucks mm-hmm. for the first 100 pounds. And then after that, it was dimensions and extra weight on top of that they charged you for. Um, but it, it's compared to having to pay for extra checked on luggage because mm-hmm. you're allowed two checked on bags as a uh, for for for, a, um, for an out of state flight coming into Alaska in state you can get three free checked bags 
for Alaska Airlines. But coming into Alaska, you get two free checked on bags. So then you're paying $100 plus a bag if it's overweight mm-hmm. for any extra luggage. So that, that racks up the, uh, the money there pretty quick. Um, I've seen guys fly as many as four caribou and a moose out of Alaska for, I, I believe, under $1,000 or right around there. It's not bad. And that's a lot of meat, folks. Yeah. And that's antlers. That's all the meat. That's the capes. I mean, they flew the whole shooting match out. Yeah. And uh, it, it, relatively speaking, it's not that bad at all. When you consider how much you put into your hunt cost-wise, mm-hmm. uh, using Alaska Airlines cargo is definitely the, the best way to go. And you can freeze it all. So you don't have to worry about it spoiling. Well, and they not only have a freeze option, but they have a cooled option. You can fly so, it chilled. Yeah. Yep. So they have multiple stages. So if you didn't want to freeze it all the way, yep. you just wanted to keep it kind of refrigerated. Yep. There's that option you too. You can tell them no freeze, just fly it chilled. Mm-hmm. And they won't freeze it hard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my, my personal recommendation would be if you can fly Alaska Airlines after that, I would stay away from American Airlines. Um, try to go with Delta if you can't get with a, with Alaska Airlines. But mm-hmm. Alaska Airlines operates in, in, in a large majority of, of the lower 48 states as they well. Do. Yeah. So chances are you'll be able to get hooked into Alaska Airlines at some point uh, at, at, at in one leg or another of your trip up here. Yeah. I believe several years ago, they they acquired other airlines mm. and kind of brought those in and they, they got those routes. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm pretty sure almost any, you know, moderate sized city in the lower 48, you can get onto Alaska Airlines with. Yeah. They're very widespread these days. Yeah. So. Yeah. They've grown a lot. Um, so yeah, recommendations uh, as far as that goes, I'd go with Alaska Airlines. And then the next one is, is, uh, is a big one for me. Uh, flying with firearms. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to fly them in a hard case. You can't fly them in a soft case. Uh, I know that seems like a given, but some folks don't know that. I, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard horror stories of guys getting ready for a hunt to come up to Alaska, and they show up to the airport with a soft case with their <laughs> rifle in it. They just don't know. You know, yeah. if, you're, if, it, if it's your first time going out of your state and you've never traveled before, if you've never been on an airplane, I, I mean, I guess you wouldn't know unless right. you've seen it in a video or, or somebody told you to do it. Um, but you can get a hard case at your local sporting goods store. Um, kind of the, uh, the, the two most important things to look at here with flying with firearms is you need to place a lock in every hole of your gun case right. where a lock can be placed. Yeah. Usually there are at least two. Uh, well, I, I think it's the rule that you have to have at least two. Yeah. Your hard case has to have at least two locking, um, two lock holes in it, and you have to have two locks on it, one on either side of the right. handle. So it cannot be pried open and someone can't get access to it once it gets through security. And then also, if it has more than two holes for locks on it, you have to have a lock in every hole. You are required to. And and that's something that will change case to case. Yeah. Because certain ones, um, I believe the smallest amount of holes I've ever seen on a a gun, a hard gun case was three. Okay. Um, they'll have one up by the by the carry handle and one in each corner, mm-hmm. um, opposite side of the hinges. I have one that has two holes in it. Oh, really? It, it's a Boyd's case. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't seen one of those. Yeah. Um, but some of them get really extreme with it. Mm-hmm. Like I've got one that has one on the the far sides, uh, one about halfway up towards the carry handle, mm-hmm. and then one on either side of the inside of the carry handle. Wow. And there's sometimes misleading information yeah because i've even been told by people at the airport that oh as long as you can't pry it open it's fine yeah and sometimes for fine like with alaska airlines as an alaskan inside the state of alaska if you're not going outside the state 
maybe they might be more maybe lenient. they might be more lenient than that. Yeah. But I've also been turned away yeah. after that, after being told that and coming back another time, um, because you are per the airline regulations required to have a a, a lock in every hole. Yeah, and I'll go farther than that. There's a specific kind of lock. Yeah, it has to be a TSA approved lock, and um, I don't think there's a specific length that the loop is allowed to be, but the loop cannot be long enough that you can pry the, the case open either. And get access to and the contents. And get access to the contents. Yeah. So make sure you're getting a smaller lock. Yeah. You're not getting one of those big, you know, padlock style, yeah. big yeah. loop locks that yeah. um, you'd be able to open that case with because they yeah. will turn you away. Yeah. The other thing the, to watch for with traveling with firearms into Alaska, uh, or, or really for anywhere for that matter, but is um, transporting your ammunition. Mm-hmm. Now, your ammunition can be flown separately from your locked gun case. Your ammunition does not have to be locked in the gun case. I recommend flying your ammo in with your gun because a lot of times folks don't lock their duffel bags or, or, or whatever other checked on luggage that they're going to bring. And uh, if someone were, in, in a worst case scenario, to uh, open up your bag at some point behind a closed door, they can rifle through your stuff, do a quote-unquote TSA inspection, and maybe they don't like how your ammo is sitting in there. Mm-hmm. Maybe your box came open and they consider that a hazard. They take it out, throw it in the garbage, zip your bag back up, and now you show up to Alaska for your once-in-a-lifetime hunt with no ammo. That's where we've talked about before shooting a cartridge that you can find ammo for locally wherever you're going. Something that you can buy factory loads for at your local sportsman's when you get there. Right. I've seen a lot of guys have that happen where they either have a zero problem where they get to Fairbanks or Anchorage or wherever they're flying into Alaska. They go to shoot their rifle before they leave the town Mm -hmm. uh, for their hunt and their zeros off. They burn through whatever ammo they brought. They didn't bring enough. Then they have to scramble to go find some. Um, but my recommendation is to fly it in with your locked gun case. So there's no chance that anybody can get access to that without right. unlocking the case. Yeah. Um, other th- the, the other specification there with flying with ammunition is it has to be in a designed ammunition carrying container. Whether that is a reloading box that has like a little plastic lid that snaps over or a factory ammunition box um, I've had some people say that they've had issues with even using reloading ammo boxes before really? that are unmarked that don't have a, like a company name on them. Hmm. They say, that's not a factory ammo box. You need to have an actual, um, ammunition box. Yep. And you know, these TSA agents aren't all hunters. They don't all understand what that is. So they're just looking for an, uh, for a marked ammunition box. So even if you're hand loading, um, I usually tell folks, just put your hand loads in a, in, in a factory ammo box. It'll fit it and just put that in your gun case. That way it yeah. looks on the up and up. Um, and, and no loose ammo yes, I was at all. Just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. No loose ammunition. You can't have any rounds in the magazine. Mm-hmm. Obviously not in the chamber. <laughs> you don't have to take the bolt out to fly in Alaska. Um, but some guys do that as kind of the next step. If you're flying with a handgun, um, I believe you can have an empty magazine in the handgun as well. If if you have a semi-automatic, that's usually how I fly those. Um, but you can't have any ammunition in your handgun magazine. Um, any additional magazines that are in there, if you have a rifle, say you have a um, a Tika rifle with a detachable box mag, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or n- not even a box mag, but a detachable magazine. Um, 
if you have extras of those in your hard case, you can't even have ammo in those. It has to be in a designed ammunition box. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So obviously no loaded guns, no ammo in magazines. Just be careful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that pretty much covers flying with firearms, I think. Well, I'll go one more step and say be very careful on if you are shopping for a hard case for your rifle. Oh, yeah. Getting a quality one. <laughs> Buy a Pelican. Um, a pelican or or something of the sorts a very an actual hard case with yeah inside of it yeah um these airlines are not gentle no. with with things and what you really don't want to do is throw your rifle in a case that loosely holds it to mm-hmm. where it's still sliding around and slamming back and forth yeah and as it's going down the conveyor belts and getting tossed into the airplane and stuff like that you're banging your scope around you, yeah. you show up and and you hope that you're still on on target right um right but that kind of the other thing I would recommend, and, and this part might depend on how you're planning to meet your your outfitter, mm-hmm. but lost luggage is a, a thing that happens. Yes. And on a once-in-a-lifetime hunt, you don't want to lose everything that you planned on bringing with you and have to repurchase everything last minute. Right. Because it might not be available, especially being here during hunting season. You're not the only one that lost their luggage, and you're not the oh, only person right. in town that wants to go hunting. So, right. Right. Um, if you can, if you can afford it, give yourself a little bit of a buffer zone. You know, don't show up the day you're going to be leaving for the hunt. Right. Um, give yourself, maybe even if it's just a day or two, because oftentimes if they lose your luggage, they will find it and they will put it on the next plane and it'll be up there within a day or two. Yeah. Um, oftentimes. Yeah. Not every time, but mm-hmm. if you give yourself a little bit of a buffer zone there, then you're more likely to have your gear with yeah. you in the event that something happens. Yes. Yes, so. that, that is a fantastic point. Um, uh, personally, even where I travel within Alaska, I always book at least two days on either end for travel yep. variances. Um, e- even if I'm booking a round trip flight, I book, uh, you know, if, if I plan to leave the town that I'm flying to and go hunt on, on, on the 15th of any given month, I'm going to land at 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 the latest on the 13th, right? right? So that yep. I've got some time for for problems. Mm-hmm. And then when I come out of the field, if I'm going to come out of the field on the 20th, um, I'm not going to book my flight um, for the 21st. I'm booking it for at the earliest, the 22nd. Right. Because if you get stuck out there due to weather, and that's another thing to consider, um, purchase travel insurance on, yeah. your, on, on your trip because I've seen it happen multiple times. Personally, I've had this happen to my clients over the years that I've hunted with in the field. Um, where we get stuck out somewhere due to weather. We can't get back to town for them to catch their commercial flight home. And uh, they're on the inreach with their wife or relative or booking agent, if they can get a hold of them that way, mm. um, trying to change their reservations and change their schedule to get home so that they don't miss their flights, pay for it, essentially, and then have to pay for a whole new trip home one way. So purchase travel insurance. It's not that much more money. Mm-hmm. Um, it, again, relatively speaking to the rest of the trip, it's pretty cheap. Correct. And it's worth its weight in gold. So uh, the next thing is, uh, is getting to camp. I know we mentioned this earlier, but about soft cases, but still bring a soft case or some kind of a dry rifle case um, for, uh, for further travel on a bush plane or a boat if mm-hmm. that's where you're going to be hunting. Um, a lot of times flying in a Super Cub, they will either have your rifle um, sitting behind you in the backseat of the plane or sometimes uh, up on your lap or in the belly pod. 
or they'll have like a um, like a plastic Culpin gun boot um, uh, bungeed to the strut of your Super Cub, <laughs> yeah. which doesn't seem very secure. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know of anybody that's lost one necessarily. I guess if you use the good quality bungees, it'll stay on there. Um, but uh, e- even in that event, you know, just um, just having at, at least if you're going on a boat hunt, I would always recommend bringing some kind of a dry case for your rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, you're going to be, uh, well, for a lot of the water hunts up in Alaska, you're going to be around salt water on the coast. Yeah. That's a given. If you're on a coast, uh, you're going to be dealing with salt water conditions, and you don't want to be in the boat if it's an exposed area on the boat and your rifle getting doused in salt water day after day. Um, other thing uh, for, for uh, having your rifle just transporting from wherever you fly into, into a bush plane and then out to camp and kind of that interim travel, um, the planes always get smaller and smaller and smaller as you go. Right. I don't bring a soft case traveling to guide anywhere anymore. I use my Stealthy Hunter rifle cover on top of my rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that protects the scope, which is the most important part, and it covers the action. And then I slide the rifle with the rifle cover on into a dry case and mm-hmm. then roll that up and seal it so that it's waterproof and the scope, which is um, the, the, the point of compromise for, for shock and impacts, is also protected. So yep. you have the protection of a soft case where you need it, but it's also dry. Yeah. So that's, a, that's an important thing to consider as well. There is another option too, that there are several manufacturers that make floating soft gun cases. Yes. Um, they carry some of them at Sportsman's or, mm-hmm. or those other uh, yep. uh, hunting outfitter stores. And uh, that's not a bad option either. Yeah. If you, I, especially if you're going to be hunting out of a boat, make sure it's high vis. Don't buy a brown or a black <laughs> one because in <laughs> right. the event that your rifle in in its in its waterproof floating case does go in the go in the drink, um, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you need to be able to see. It. You don't want to look like every other floating log out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, if if you're hunting in a river, um, yeah, if it goes in the water, you're probably not going to find it. No, if it's, not if in it's, the river. If it's fast flowing, um. Next item is always shoot your weapon to verify zero and point of impact in the event that the airline handling um, shifted your point of impact. Um, So whether you're shooting a bow or a rifle, Mm -hmm. um, the first thing I would recommend you do once you are done flying, um, when you get to your base camp or your lodge, wherever you're hunting out of or getting moved from there out to a spike camp, obviously you don't want to be shooting a rifle at spike camp until you're ready to kill your animal. Right. You don't want to be making extra noise out there. So when you get to base camp or your lodge where the outfit is based, um, and, and again, a lot of outfitters will have you do this, but if they don't suggest it, you suggest it. Hey, is there a spot that I can go out to 100 yards and put out a paper target or even a paper plate and just sharpie a dot in the middle of it and just check the zero on my rifle? Yeah. You need to do that. That's a must-have. And, and kind of just to throw back to how rough they are on the air. On the airlines. I've seen you know, them throwing gun cases right. on the tarmac. Yeah. It's not it's, good. It's not a gentle process. So yeah. a good case will eliminate a lot of of issues with that. Mm-hmm. But always verify. Always, always verify. Let's wrap back to that for a second. I see a lot of guys recommending that you pack your hard rifle case. Okay. Let's go back even further than that. You open up your brand new hard case. Let's just say it's a Pelican. Mm-hmm. There are going to be three layers of gray foam yes. in there. The top layer sits in the lid. The bottom layer sits in the bottom of the, uh, of, of the case. And then there's a middle layer so that it, when it closes, it's all just flush up against one another. That middle layer of foam, 
in the middle of the cases, you open it up, it's sitting right there in front of you. Right. That layer of foam is designed for you to lay your gun on top of, take a Sharpie marker and trace the outline of your firearm mm-hmm. and then cut out a little cut out a little outline of that so that your rifle sits inleted into that foam. Yeah. So that when you close the lid, that foam is going to hold your rifle in that exact spot. So it's protected top, bottom and left or right side by foam. Yeah. A lot of guys take out that middle foam layer because <laughs> they can pack clothes in there yeah, and use that as extra luggage space. I used to do that, and then I kept showing up in areas. I would open up my gun case, and TSA had inspected it mm-hmm. because they have access to your TSA locks, and they would rearrange my clothes that I had in my rifle case to where it wasn't secure anymore. Right, It would shift. And I would open up the gun case and the scope would be resting on the plastic at the top of the gun case. Yeah. It got slammed around too much. Yeah. And so now my point of impact is all, you know, out of whack and I had to burn through some ammo. And I'm not kidding you, three or four years in a row I had this happen and I kept trying to pack things in there tighter and make it more difficult for them to rearrange it because I liked that I could pack more junk in there. Yeah. But in the end, I ended up just starting cutting that foam layer mm-hmm. to uh, to the stencil of, um, of of whatever I wanted to put in there. And like I said, yeah. I have a little cutout for my handgun. I have a little cutout for my rifle. I have a cutout for my ammo boxes to yeah. sit in. That way, nothing moves. Well, and in most cases with Pelican brands or similar brands to Pelican, um, that middle layer of foam is siped. So it is it has cuts in it in cubes that mm. are roughly what, like two inches by two inches, I've something like that. I've seen that, but none of mine have come with that. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Personally, I don't mine have did. any experience with that, but yeah. I, have, I have seen a few like that. It makes it really easy because when you go and you do that outline, yeah. you just pull those cubes mm-hmm. right where that outline is yeah. and, and your gun just sits in there. Yeah. Uh, the other nice thing about it is if you are carrying other things, let's say you're, you're putting your rifle and a handgun mm-hmm. and maybe a couple boxes of ammo in there, yeah. you can cut individual stencils for each one of them yes. so then a, a lot of problems you'll run into with the cheaper like two gun cases let's mm-hmm. say you're bringing a shotgun and a rifle mm-hmm. um those if it doesn't hold the rifle secure those are going to slam into each other yes. a lot yes. um just for anybody listening do me a favor look in your gun closet or wherever you keep your your cases if it if the foam in there looks like uh one of those mattress toppers Egg carton type. Egg carton type. You're you're playing with danger. Yeah. That's not going to hold your rifle secure. It's yeah. going to slosh around in there, and it's going to slam up against the edges, especially if you have multiple guns in there. Yeah. And and you're running the risk of of losing your zero. Yeah. If you can grab your hard rifle case at either end with two hands and twist it, mm. it's not strong <laughs> enough. Yeah. Those Pelican ones are built like a bomb shelter. Oh yeah. And because they are a plastic material. They're a lot lighter than an old metal one is. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to approach that 50-pound weight limit as quickly as you would with a metal case. Right. That's something else I like about that Pelican case that I've got. I've got a couple of those now. Um, so yeah, ch- always check your point of impact when you get there. Obviously, you can shoot your bow when you get there. Make sure that the outfitter has an archery target or something that you can shoot your bow into. Mm-hmm. Um, bring a couple of blunts to shoot um, just e- even after you get out from the super cub um, from the lodge or the, or the main camp out to your spike camp shooting your bow doesn't have any effect on the area right obviously it's silent so no big deal to shoot your bow there and i would actually recommend that 
Um, if your outfitter will allow you, ask if you can bring like a little miniature dice target that you can just bring out and set out at distance at your spike camp, mm -hmm. if that's something that you can do. Obviously not on a mountain hunt where you got to pack your camp around everywhere, but if you're brown bear hunting or moose hunting and, and you're and you're basing out of one spike camp the whole time and you're stationary there, um, having a little archery target with you that you can just shoot a couple of arrows a day, middle of the day when you're back there for lunch or something like that, or if you have some downtime, um, number one, just to make sure that your bow is on if it gets knocked around or if you fall on it or if you drop it or if it gets mm -hmm. knocked over, but also just to keep your muscles limbered up. Um, for Stay archery sharp. hunting, that is a really, really good thing to, to be able to do. And if you can't bring an archery target, find a dirt bank with a, with a rubber blunt or a judo point to shoot into mm -hmm. just to keep those mechanics strong. You know, just yep. make sure that your form is good and it's just, it's just good to do it and just to stretch out those muscles in the field. Absolutely. Um, next thing is any and all clothing and personal gear are solely your responsibility to bring. Don't rely on the outfitter to have anything for you. If you think, well, I, I need better rain gear, but the outfitter said he has a few extra sets of rubber rain gear out there at or camp, a heavy coat or yeah, anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and, and most outfitters will tell you, you have to bring all that stuff on your own. But, um, just a reminder, bring all of your own personal equipment, hygiene items, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, a few things that what your guide should or might normally have on the hunt for you. Uh, we'll just go through these one by one here. Number one is your tent. If you're young and can carry the weight, I, I, I should say, if you're young or can still carry the weight and have a high-end tent that you trust, mm -hmm. I would advise to bring your own. Yeah. Now, this is specifically for a mobile mountain camp type of a hunt. Right. If you're going sheep hunting or mountain bear hunting or um, mountain goat hunting, things like that, things where you're going to be hiking and moving camps on a regular basis, where it's either going to be you bring your own tent or the outfitter supplies you with a personal tent for you to use for yourself the whole time. If it's in that situation and you already own a high quality backpacking mountain tent that you've experienced with in the field and... Um, and, and that you trust and that can stand up to the weather conditions that you'll be in and, you, and, and you're an experienced mountain hunter, I would ask the outfitter if you can just bring your own tent. Mm. And sometimes they'll ask you if you want to. A lot of times they'll say, well, we have plenty of tents and your packer will just carry a tent for you the whole time. Tell him, hey, you know what? I've already got a really high quality tent. Can he just carry my tent? Even if you're not the one packing it, if you've got a guide, a packer, and yourself on, say, a sheep hunt or a mountain goat hunt, um, something where you're, again, going to be moving camps on a regular basis. You're not stationary. Um, bringing your own tent that you trust and that you know is in good condition. Right. And here's a, here, here's a little caveat. Um, outfitting in Alaska is not a get-rich-quick scheme. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know um, very many, if any, truly rich outfitters. I've never met one. Yeah. They're all hardworking, blue-collar guys, um, just like you and me that have just made this their business for life. Um, outfitters don't have a retirement plan. Yeah. This is just what they do. Outfitting is extremely expensive to do in Alaska. Right. It is the overhead of operating an outfitting business in Alaska is unbelievably expensive. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't say this as a discredit towards them in any way, shape or form, but outfitters don't, replace gear like you and I can afford to do. 
right. because we're not paying the overhead of fuel for a Super Cub or the, the the cost of annual inspections on a Super Cub yeah. or however many Super Cubs they have or their boats or their motors or yeah. their camp gear. They can't afford to do that like we can on a personal level, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have personal equipment such as a tent that you used before and you trust it and uh, and you have confidence in it and it's legitimately a high quality tent and the outfitter says well i have tents ask him what they are yeah first off and uh if you're more comfortable bringing your own tent and if he says it's okay then i would advise to just bring your own tent for a mountain hunt that, right that'd be the safer way to go and it's a very important piece of gear. It, I mean, it's it, a survival it, item. Yes. And, and so it's not something you really want to gamble on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next thing is the water filtration options. Um, no matter where you go in Alaska, um, there's going to be different case situations for your mm-hmm. water supply on your hunt. And this is, again, while you're out on your spike camp um, during the hunt for whatever animal you're after. Um, you're going to be getting your water from ponds, rivers, or mountain streams, or high mountain puddles somewhere. For the most part, if you're sheep hunting, you can pretty much just drink whatever water you find within right. reason. Unless you're down low somewhere on the way into an area, um, and you're not above alpine where it's going to be cleaner water. Um, for the most part, when you're up at any kind of real elevation well above the brush, that water is pretty safe to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're OCD about it and you have to filter it some way, or if you just want to sterilize it, even on a moderate level, you can bring like an ultralight uh, mini Steri pen that mm-hmm. uses ultraviolet light. It has a micro USB charger on it. Um, you just stick that little wand in your uh, in your Nalgene bottle. It'll filter up to one liter of water at a time. It takes 30 seconds for that UV light to kill all the bacteria in it. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Now, the downside of it is you can only filter one liter at a time. Right. And it's battery operated. It's an electronic item that you're relying on. Right. Now, I have one. I didn't own one until about two months ago. Mm -hmm. I never trusted them because years and years ago, I went on a hunt with somebody um, for grizzly bears in October up here in Alaska, and it was below freezing at night and the cold killed this guy's thermocell. Now, luckily, mm. we were well above the brush line. We were able to drink out of a stream. It wasn't a problem, but he had just gotten a SteriPen, and uh, he tried to use it, and uh, it didn't work. It, it, it died on him, and it, we couldn't get it to work. So thankfully, on that trip, we were able to get water a different way and not even have to filter it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something to consider if you're going to bring a SteriPen, um, either have a way to recharge it or just understand that it's, it could be limiting. I would always recommend, even if you don't bring a SteriPen or some kind of a pump filter or a squeeze bag filter for your own water, at least have some little tablets that you can put in water. Mm. This is for an emergency case scenario. Um, and this would be, of course, assuming that uh, most of the time your guide, uh, well, always your guide should have a way to, to provide clean water. That's, uh, that's going to be included with the hunt, whether it's a pump filter or a SteriPen or a gravity feed bag filter system, like a Sawyer system. Mm-hmm. Those are pretty popular up here. Um, in the event, it, in the unlikely and unfortunate event that an emergency happens and you become separated from your guide for any amount of time and you run out of water, you need to be able to just dip water out of any given place, yeah. drop a couple of purifying tablets in it, and know that in however amount of time it takes that tablet to purify that much water, you can drink it and not have to worry about getting sick. Right. So 
And those little tablets come in like a little tiny little glass bottle that just go in your emergency kit and your pack. They don't weigh literally anything. Right. They make the water taste a little bit funny, (laughs) but I'd rather have funny taste in water and know that I'm not going to get sick from it. Than get Giardia out in the middle of nowhere. Than get Giardia. And not even just Giardia, because Giardia takes usually a couple weeks to set in, Mm. but there are other things that you can get from the water. You know, if there's a dead caribou, Right. 20 yards upstream that you don't see that's laying in the river and half decomposed and you're drinking out of that river. Right. Unknowingly, you're going to get a whole lot worse than Giardia and it's going to hit <laughs> yeah. you. It's going to hit you within a matter of hours and you're going to be in trouble. Right. So that's something to ask your, uh, to ask your guide as well. Um, what kind of water filtration um, that they plan to do on the hunt and how safe is the water to drink. Like I said, for anything above the brush line, you're probably going to be fine to just drink straight out of the ground. Yep. So well, let's grab a break real quick and uh, we'll hit the rest of these when we get back. Okay. All right, folks. We all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, go to StealthyHunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. All right. So the next thing we have on the list here is your spotting scope. Yeah. Uh, so generally the guide and possibly other help on the hunt will have their, their own spotting scopes and you don't need to carry your own. Um, I would say in, in my personal experience, I would rather carry my own mm-hmm. personally, um, simply because I, I'm a big advocate for using gear you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, a spotting scope doesn't necessarily uh, equate success, especially mm-hmm. if you're in a group where other people might right. have spotting scopes. Right. Um, but especially with the modern ones, if you, if you have a good one, mm-hmm. I'll say that. If you have a good one that's lightweight that you have a setup to carry already, let's say you you... Right. Always carry it in your pack while you're hunting elk back in your back in your home state, and you're coming up here for a caribou or a moose hunt or something like that. Um, there's definitely no problem with bringing your own. Mm-hmm. But what what kind of ones have you seen out in the field that that have been provided for people? Well, so usually an outfitter will tell the client not to bring their own spotter really um, okay. on a sheep hunt or any kind of a mobile mountain hunt. Mm-hmm. That's where spotting scopes are going to be used. Um, the most primarily percentage wise on a hunt. Now your guide is always going to have a spotting scope. Even if you're blacktail deer hunting for the most part, the guide's going to have a spotting scope. And that's to save you miles of walking to get, to get into binoculars range to field judge it. Right. Now with sheep hunting, especially field judging an animal is a legal requirement before you kill the animal. Mm -hmm. You can't just pick a ram and just kill it right exactly. it has to be full curl or double broomed or full curl on one side broomed in the other or have eight growth rings um 
at, at least to be uh, considered a legal ram to kill. Right. So dull sheep are a big one for that. Um, in a lot of areas where you're mountain goat hunting and it's billy only for harvest, um, your guide has to be able to distinguish if it's a billy or a nanny. That requires a spotting scope as well for a close-up view. Um, also for moose hunting, um, your guide has to be able to judge if it's 50 inches wide or wider mm-hmm. or count brow tines. Right. That's all essential work for a spotting scope. Yeah. Now, let's just take, for example, a sheep hunt. Let's just say that it's the client, a guide that's the lead on the hunt, and then a packer that's accompanying you on the hunt to help uh, carry food and gear and extra water. And then when you kill a ram, he'll help pack it out so that mm-hmm. you don't have to carry anything on the way out any more than you carried in there. Um, generally speaking, even with that setup, it is just going to be the lead guide that carries a spotter. Yeah. Because you have the potential to go so far into the backcountry, you're looking at counting every pound in your pack that you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And a spotting scope doesn't provide the client with any more legal um, aid yeah. on judging a ram. It's the, it's the guide's decision. It is, yeah. He's going to look it over, and, and for that matter, whether it's a sheep or a bull moose or a mountain goat or a bear distinguishing boar versus sow mm-hmm. in a field judging situation like that, um, the guide is going to make that call. So uh, for, the, for the vast majority of the time, a client having a spotting scope isn't, it isn't going to be of any help at all to anybody on the hunt mm-hmm. unless for two situations. Number one, if the, if the guide spotter becomes compromised, if right. he drops it off a cliff and loses it, or if he gets water in the lenses and it's not usable anymore, yeah, um, or if he just misplaces it. You know, if he's repacking his bag and he just, uh, you know, it's early morning one day and it's super dark out and Mm -hmm. he just sets it down on a rock next to his pack, says, okay, I got everything. Zip, 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 straps on his pack and walks away from it. I've heard of that happening. I've never had anybody that I know that's done that. Um, But anything's possible when you're in a hurry, I (laughs) guess. Um, I I hope it never happens to anybody that I know or myself. Um, But, you know, some things are just, uh, it it just happens. Accidents and mistakes happen. The other thing that it can provide is client entertainment. Yeah. And that's why, and any client that I've ever seen that brings their own spotting scope, that's why they bring it. Yeah. They bring it because they want to be included on glassing for sheep. Right. Because a lot of these areas um, for sheep hunting, you're going to get up top on a ridgetop or a peak somewhere up in a, uh, up on a high mountain saddle and you're glassing over sheep country mm-hmm. and you can see the mountains around you the mountains beyond you and the mountains on the horizon. And those are miles and miles and miles away. And your guide is only going to be looking at what's reasonably distinguishable within spotter distance Mm -hmm. within out to three or four miles to to find sheep. And then within two miles to actually judge if there's rams in them and then a mile and a half or less to start to get an idea of legality. And then under a mile, um, preferably under a thousand yards to really make the final call, unless it's just an absolute cranker that he can tell from a mile that he's, oh my goodness, he's just huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in that situation, the guide is going to be in a spotter a lot because mm-hmm. 10, even 12 power binoculars are not going to cut it to be able, even within a couple of miles, to distinguish any kind of horn characteristics or even remotely close to legality judging. Right. 
So the guide's going to be in a spotter a lot. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is the packer doesn't have a spotter. He's in his binoculars because he's just doing his due diligence to help participate in the hunt and mm-hmm. help glass something up that the guide might not see in a spotter with his more limited field of view. Then the client just kind of feels left out. Yeah. Right? He's just left kind of sitting there. He pulls up his binoculars every once in a while. He kind of pans around. And then he just eventually, and, and, and it's easy to do. It, it's it's hard to imagine right now because it just sounds like so much fun and adventure to be on the mountain sheep hunting. <laughs> but it can get kind of boring. Yeah. You spend a lot of hours in the glass hunting r- really anything up here. Yeah. But it feels like sheep hunting because there's really there's no brush to try to look through either they're out there or they're not. Mm-hmm. And yet, so you're trying to pick apart the crags and the cliffs and where could they be hiding behind that? I can't see a terrain depth feature there, right? but there's actually a huge hidden Canyon right there a, a, a mile and a half away that, uh, that you can't see that's th- that that's there unless you're in a spotter. Mm-hmm. Well, the client just gets bored because he doesn't see any of that detail. So in some situations, if you really, really want to bring your own spotter, um, I would plan to carry it yourself. Oh be- yeah, because I, I would say so too. Be- and I, I would say it's not just the spotter weight that you have to be they have to be concerned about. You're also carrying a tripod, right? Right. And a tripod's a couple of pounds. The spotter is a couple of pounds if you carry a big one for sheep yeah. hunting. Um, so just keep that in mind and know your physical limitations. So, and that's kind of why I, I, I led into it with you know if you have a setup already. Yeah. Um, because it is a lot. It's going to be a lot extra if, it if you're not used to carrying that already. Yeah. A big reason I, I feel like I would want to carry one mm-hmm. on, and I've never been on a guided sheep hunt, um, yeah. because I have no need to because I'm a resident. Right. But I would feel, and, and this is just me. Yeah. This, is, this is me personally. I want to be hunting. Mm-hmm. I'm not out there just to shoot. I understand. I'm out there yeah. for the experience of yeah. hunting, and I can get a little competitive. Mm-hmm. And my goal is to find a legal sheep before the guide does. If I was to be on that hunt, um, and, and, and it's not to say that you know, not to prove, oh, I'm a better hunter than you or anything else. It's just something it's just, fun. It's to just do. a fun race, you know. Right. It's like, um, and I and I want to see what they're seeing too. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to just be sitting there teetering around on my phone or whatever, or reading a book, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, there's one. Mm-hmm. Like. For me personally, I'm a very DIY kind of guy, mm-hmm. and, and that applies to every aspect of yeah. my life, whether it's you know hunting or fixing my truck or fixing up my house or, or anything like that. Yeah, I try to do everything myself if I can, right. if, if it's within my limits. As I, as I get older, I'm learning my limitations a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but for me, like the the idea of sitting there without a spotter, yeah, just you just feel kind of left. Just out. doesn't sound fun at all. Yeah, like I, that that's. So for me, if, if I can bring one, mm-hmm. if, if the guide is willing to let me bring my own, mm-hmm. which if, if I'm willing to carry it, I couldn't really see why they wouldn't. Most of um, them are, are yeah, they, they're not going to say, no, you are not allowed to bring a spotting scope. Right. They're just going to try to steer you away from it because they know it's not necessary. If you reach your physical limitation two days earlier because you're carrying an extra 10 pounds for spotter right. and tripod, maybe if it's yeah. an ultra big setup. Um, they, they want to try to stretch your physical limitations out as far as you can, mm-hmm. if the hunt goes that far. Right. Right. Yeah. So that, that's kind of where they're at is the more weight that the client wants to carry, the less hunting he's going to be able to complete throughout mm-hmm. the course of the days. Um, and, and it, it's difficult. It, it's a hard balance because you have to treat your packer with enough respect 
that you don't make him quit mm-hmm. and give up because <laughs> right. then you don't have a packer. Yeah. But you also want to ask, okay, well, you said I can bring my own spotter. Um, do you have a packer that'll carry that for me? Right. Like if you're an older guy, right, mm-hmm. and you can't carry as much weight, but you really, really, really want to bring that spotting scope, you're already carrying your own sleeping bag, your own clothes, your own binoculars, your own rifle and all that kind of stuff. Um, even on a sheep hunt, you will still end up carrying probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 or 45 pounds. Yeah. And that's not including food or water. Usually the packer is going to carry your ration of food and, and all the extra water that's mm-hmm. there for you. Um, so you're still carrying all of your own stuff. And then if you add a spotter and tripod to that, that adds say seven pounds. Now you go from 45 pounds and north of 50 pounds. Yeah. That might not sound like a lot, but over 10 days of hiking multiple miles a day, in mm-hmm. terrain that you're not used to, it, it, it adds up pretty quick. Right. So it's something that from my perspective, I would say it's not necessary for the client to bring it. If you do want to bring it, something to really clarify with the outfitter well ahead of time and just ask him. Well, and, and I'm going to insert something into the list that, that's not here, okay. um, but I think is relevant to this conversation. But prior to going on a guided hunt, uh, exercising, and focusing oh, yeah. on your physical fitness yes. prior to getting up there, training for the hunt yes. is huge. Whether or not you plan on bringing your own spotter, mm-hmm. because like you said, it might add an extra 10 pounds, mm-hmm. but you're still going to be carrying a pack, even if you don't have that. Yep. Um, and kind of along those same lines, making sure that you are able to, to do the hunt, you're able to make those hikes. Mm-hmm. You know, Don't let uh, your guided hunt be the first time you've gone on a hike in the mountains. With a heavy backpack. With a heavy backpack. Yeah. yeah. Not not just, you know, a, a right. water bladder on your back and a pair of right. trekking poles. Like, right. you know, load up a backpack and train with it before you get yes. up here. Train with weight. Yeah. Um, a couple of, well, one particular is Mountain Tough. Um, I've heard good things about their uh, their hunter's workout mm-hmm. program. It's, it's centered around hiking with weight and getting you into shape for the purpose of a backcountry hunt. Yep. Don't just youtube how to get in shape fast you know <laughs> get abs in 60 days or 60 something. day challenge yeah yeah, yeah. And, and don't don't uh you know if if you're not used to working out like that don't go out and do something like uh i, I don't know is it called 75 hard or something like that i haven't heard of that it, one yeah that, there's like p90x and, and I, all those other ones yeah that are like the, there's the, the video there's all kinds of trends and people yeah. post their gym exercises every single day you don't have to be a gym hunt to go on an Alaska hunt. No. I'm sorry. You don't have to be a gym rat to go on an Alaska hunting trip. You do not. Um, but the best thing you can do, bar none, is take the backpack that you're going to go on your hunt with, mm-hmm. put at least 40 pounds in it. I mean, even if you start at 30, put yeah. 30 pounds in, walk two miles a day, or, yeah. or start out at a half mile, right? If you're not ready yet, mm-hmm. then take that 30 pounds and go a mile then go a mile and a half, then go two miles. By the time you can do, I would say, two miles mm-hmm. easily, bump that weight up, 40 pounds. And then maybe try to go up and, and do that at least every other day and then go up five pounds a week mm-hmm. until you get up to that 60 or 65-pound range. And that's going to be about the most you're going to have to carry um, unless you are going to have to help pack out the ram. Usually right. your guide and packer will pack out the ram, no problem, and you don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but be prepared to carry a little bit more than you think. You never know what's going to happen. Well, right? and, and the last thing you want to do is like pay all the money for a guided hunt, mm-hmm. come all the way up here, 
and make it out to the mountains and suck wind and yeah you you can't even breathe halfway up the mountain because you had no idea what you were getting yourself into yeah so just make sure you're physically able to do any of the hunt yeah and then especially if you plan on bringing extra gear like like i would Mm -hmm. in that situation so absolutely not that's that's a good point to make on physical fitness um, next thing on here is food and snacks. This won't take very long. Um, the outfitter and guide will have all the food and snackage that you are going to need. They'll mm. probably go through that with you and ask you about any known allergies or things that you don't want to eat out in the field. Um, as far as what they've got there at base camp, they'll mm-hmm. run that by you before they head out with that packed gear uh, for your food supply. Um, and then if you want to bring any of your own supplements or vitamins and a few backcountry medicines, but don't overpack on the medicine side as you should already have a few essential medicines in your stealthy hunter medical kit. Um, and that's the, that's the medical kit that we recommend for hunters to use up here. It's lightweight. It's got what you need for a hunt. So don't overpack on it, but make sure that if you take vitamins every day or you have to have some, uh, some prescription meds, Mm -hmm. don't forget that. You don't want to enter. You don't want to end up in a health emergency out in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. Yep. Um, if the weather rolls in and you can't get out right away for some help, um, you need to have your own. Uh, and, and again, for me, having your own um, vitamins and/or supplements or medication that you require is a part of your essential kit. That yeah. should that should never leave your person. That that needs to be in your bag on you at all times when possible, right? Yep. Don't separate yourself from that pack either. Um, that's just a little side note. But as far as food and snacks go, <laughs> you know, I, I, you can ask the outfitter and say, hey, you know, is it okay if I bring a dozen of my favorite candy bar? This is just what I really like. I eat these all the time when I'm hunting and he doesn't have any of those. Hey, all right, I'll take out a, a few things that we had for you. You can bring your own few of those. I've right. seen guys do that before. That's not a problem. Yeah. Again, run it by the outfitter so you're not overpacking. You've got a bunch extra because weight is is very valuable mm-hmm. on a mountain hunt like that. Yeah. Um, knives and kill kit. Um, the guide will have um, a butchering knife of some sort and a skinning knife or some kind of a caping knife yeah. that he can do all the detail work for trophy care and meat care in the field. Um, and as far as game bags go, that's all on the guide and the outfitter. You don't have to worry about any of that. However, bring your own knife. Yeah. At least I I would recommend one good knife. Don't overpack. Don't bring too much weight again, but bring a good hunting knife. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously we recommend Yukon river knives. They are a classic design, uh, build of knives. Um, I'll be using, uh, for the first time here this fall, I've got a small game that I'm going to be using from Yukon river knives. Um, it's a little bit more compact than the Yukon River Knife Hunter model, mm-hmm. um, which is my everyday carry. I carry that knife everywhere. And I, it's a good multi-purpose do-it-all knife. I would recommend um, either a Hunter or a small game from Yukon River Knives. That's a good um, dual purpose, kind of can do anything if you need it to. It'll do everything well. And um, it, it would just be good for you to have your own knife and as a survival item. Yeah. You never know when you're going to need a knife. Absolutely. I mean, we're all guys here. Um, for the most part, uh, the, the vast majority of clientele coming to Alaska is going to be guys, and even all the all all the lady hunters that I've uh, that I've encountered in the field, they oh, all yeah. have their own knives oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, no matter what you're doing, um, you should always have your own knife on you. So I ha- I wanted to pick your brain on that a little bit. Okay. So because again, I haven't been on guided hunts before, mm-hmm. um, but I've looked into guided hunts before. Yeah. And a lot of them 
all the ones I've looked into are in the lower 48. And they'll have, you know, your hunt fee, and then they'll have your skinning and processing fee mm. um, on some of these, uh, whether mm. they're deer outfitters, sometimes, I mean, heck, in some of the, the southern parts, there's like even hog outfitters and things like that. Okay. Um, where they take the animal apart. Uh, what is that? What has that looked like in your experience in the field? Is it like you're not allowed to take your animal apart? Uh-huh. Or because, again, part of myself, I mean, that's part of the experience for me. That's part of the hunt. You right. know, once you kill the animal, that's, that's, that's part of the, what I like is like taking the moose apart, taking the caribou apart. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that most outfitters don't want you to do? Mm-hmm. Um, due to the, the trophy quality of the animal yeah. and, and the risk that you might damage something and then, yeah. you know, try to turn that around on them kind right. of thing. You know, it's almost like an insurance thing for them. Yes. Um, or is there sometimes an option, depending on the hunt, maybe? Um, what, what does that look like out in, out in the field? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I've had a couple of clients that have had taxidermy experience, mm-hmm. and they are a genuine bona fide help to yeah. have on a hunt. They expedite the skinning and butchering and trophy care process by at least half the time. Yeah. They are a fantastic help. However, the vast majority of, of the people that I've hunted with as far as clients go, um, this is their first time to Alaska. Mm-hmm. They don't usually do a lot of their own butchering. You know, if, if they kill a deer or an elk or, um, or, or, or any animal in the low 48 for that matter, they kill it, they gut it, they throw it in their vehicle, and mm-hmm. they take it to a butcher. Okay. And, uh, or, or, or a taxidermist to have it skinned for trophy care, then they take the meat to a butcher. And so yeah. they, they, they aren't involved in that part of the process. Yeah. Um, at least that's, that's what I've encountered the most. Okay. Now, you're right, though, as far as a liability stance goes, it would be somewhat risky if a client said, oh, yeah, I, I know how to skin animals and I know how to do this. And then they start hacking away and they ruin the cape on their caribou or their moose. Right. Then they go back to the outfitter and say, well, my guide let me do this. And he didn't tell me that I was doing it wrong while I was doing it. And so, you know, essentially it's his fault for not telling me. So right. I needed a replacement caribou cape. So you're going to need to figure that out. Um, so yeah, I, I can see how that could be a thought. Um, I haven't directly encountered that, so I, I can't say for sure if that's right. the reason why. A lot of it is just because the clients understand that the, the guide is the professional, mm-hmm. right? Um, in the States, we're called guides. Um, overseas, guides are called PHs like in Africa, professional right. hunters. I, I almost like that term better because guide is kind of a kind of a flowy term in the right. States because you can be a, a hiking guide or a fishing guide or a, um, a rafting guide mm-hmm. or a tour guide or a hunting guide or a tour guide in New York city. Right. Mm-hmm. So guide is, is kind of a bland term for that. I feel like, right. I I've always thought that the term pH or professional hunter, that's like specific to what your occupation is. Right. Mm-hmm. So for the vast majority of the time, the clients um, don't really want to get in the guide's way because they understand this is the this is the guide's job. Like this is what we do. Gotcha. We're good at it. The outfitter wouldn't hire somebody who's not experienced at field care and butchering and trophy care process. Yeah. So, I I, I would say all of the clients that I've ever had 
have always been very good about that. And right. and they try to help where they can, you know, okay, hold, the leg or hold this leg up yeah. or pull on the bear hide this way. And then I'll try to grab this leg and roll it back and skin over the back this way. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're always very helpful. Right. But um, I, I've never had a bad, I've never had a bad experience with a client, um, quote unquote, knowing more than me about field butchering. Right. Yeah. More times than not, they remark, oh, well, you do it that way. That's, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And, and but because these are, these are animals that they haven't hunted before. They have whitetail deer or hog in their mind mm-hmm. from their experiences. And then they're looking at you doing a moose or a caribou or a doll sheep or a black tail <laughs> deer or a mountain goat, whatever that might be. And, and they've never seen that done. So that it, it's a whole new experience and perspective from field care and butchering and trophy care process okay, yeah. in their perspective. So, um, yeah, I, I would say for the most part, um, the clients just try to just help and they hold a leg here and pull the hide there okay. and just assist with that. Yeah. Um, but you, you're, you're, you're never going to be expected as a client to do any of that yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but on that note, look for ways to pitch in. Like I said, you know, just offer to help, do whatever you can. Yeah. And if you are a very experienced taxidermist or or, or something in that field, or you're a guide somewhere else, mm-hmm. and you are on a hunt in Alaska, you know, tell your guide while you're on the hunt before you kill your animal, hey, I'm an experienced outdoorsman. I've caped dozens of elk and deer all myself. I do all of my own trophy and meat care at home. Yeah let me help you with this. We can save, you know, a half the time and be very efficient and, 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 uh, and have two knives going at the same time on this moose, obviously be safe with that. Mm-hmm. But, um, just, just offer that to your guy. Now he, he might decline it. Um, but, uh, chances are he's going to be grateful for the help. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. Uh, but yeah, always have a knife with you. I'd recommend either Yukon river knife hunter or small game, kind of a do it all, um, covers all your bases deal. Um, a headlamp, you know, usually the outfitter and, and, uh, and the crew there will have, um, some extra headlamps. I've seen those offered, you know, oh oh yeah, no, I I have some extra headlamps. Do you have your own? You know, like they ask you that after you get there. Right. Um, some outfitters are really good about a, a, a very comprehensive gear list of what you should bring as the client for your hunt. Some of them don't have a headlamp on there. I've seen that before. Um, but always bring your own headlamp and have some extra batteries for it. We talked about headlamps just a couple episodes ago mm-hmm. um, in the entry-level gear for beginning hunters, um, but uh, we, we've touched on different headlamps before, so we won't spend any time on that. Um, your rangefinder. You shouldn't solely rely on your guide to always call ranges for you. It's, it's definitely going to be common, but if, he, but, but if his rangefinder quits working, it's not a bad idea to have your own rangefinder or rangefinding binos built into your binoculars just in case his quits. Right. And uh, this is something that's far easier to carry than, say, a spotting scope is. Mm-hmm. Um, a rangefinder, uh, a, a nice compact uh, loophole 1500 or 1600i or something like that, <clears throat> um, it, it's, it's almost no weight penalty, mm-hmm. um, realistically speaking. And uh, especially if you have rangefinding binos, they're a touch heavier than normal binoculars. But uh, like I said, in the event that the, that the guide's rangefinder or, or the guide and packer's rangefinding devices quit working, um, it'd be a, it, it, it would be a good redundant field to have in okay. your kit, yeah. um, just in case. Now, for the most part, I, I've, I've noticed that probably 90% of the other guides that I've worked with in camps all have rangefinding binos. Mm-hmm. That's just the way that the industry has gone for Alaska. It is so handy. It's so fast. You can field judge when you get up close. 
Um, you can watch the shot take place through binoculars um, if you're not bear hunting, and uh, and and you can call ranges to your client. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, he's at three fifty. He's walking closer. He's at three ten. Right? And you can you can update your client on the distance to the animal as he approaches or walks away, and you're waiting for a shot opportunity. Right. And then you're in the glass at the same time that your hunter's in the glass, so that when the animal turns, you're going to see him through the same magnification that your hunter is going to see him just about through a rifle scope, right? Mm-hmm. So you can see, okay, he's broadside, take him right there, right? And you can tell him the ranges. If you don't have that, if the guide's rangefinder quits working for one reason or another, loses it, bangs it up, or it just stops, mm-hmm. um, then having your own rangefinder would be a good way to, uh, to have some redundancy there and some insurance so that if an animal is 300 yards away and you overestimate it because your guide's rangefinder quit working, you estimate it at 425 and you shoot right over it, right? Right. So that's that's a small weight penalty for potentially a big um, hunt-saving item that, mm-hmm. that might come in handy down the road if something goes wrong. Um, game bags, we already covered all that for meat care. Guide will have game bags. A lot of guys ask about that. Yeah. Um, this is kind of where we get into less about items and more about how a hunt is going to go. Okay. So the flow of the hunt and what you kind of what you should expect throughout the day of any given hunt. And, and this is not going to be specific to sheep hunting or moose hunting or caribou hunting. This is just kind of a mixed bag of how it's going to go, no matter what species you're hunting. Um, your guide and packer are going to do all the cooking, all the camp chores, including setup and takedown of camp, except in the event that you bring your own tent. Mm. Um, Try to do your best to stay involved with that process. Don't let yourself just um, not become lazy, but get bored. Right. It's surprisingly easy to do. And and this is something that uh, that someone told me a long time ago that, that I find very useful as a guide. Every one of the clients that you're going to have is a professional at something in their life. Mm-hmm. That's how they can afford to be on that hunt. <laughs> right. It's very important as a guide to never look down on a client because, well, you know, you need to, you need to have a guide to come up to Alaska so you don't know anything. Yeah. And that's, that's not, that shouldn't be your approach at all. Well, ever. And, and, and ever. Partially, that's just due to legality with, right. with certain animals in the, yeah. in the state. You right. Know, they can't hunt if they're not, a, right. if if they're they're, not a resident. Right. If it's brown or grizzly bears or doll sheep or mountain goat, they're mm-hmm. not allowed to hunt without a guide. Right. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these guys don't know where to even go for moose or caribou or black-tailed deer or black bear, so they just hire a guide. Mm-hmm. But you know what? They can afford to do that. They've earned that right. Right. So, uh, I, I, and that's not even for the client's sake, but just for the guide's sake. Always treat the client with the respect that they deserve. They've they've earned the spot to be there, right? They're right. a professional at something. Um, but for the client side, it's easy to just feel like, well, you know, they're setting up camp, they're cooking, they're doing dishes. Offer to pitch in and help. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's if it's not a big deal, you know, if if the guide w- will let you, offer to help pitch in and, and help set up tents, especially if it's foul weather coming in. Man, do your best to be a part of that process. Right. Ask the guide, hey, what can I do to help? He'll tell you ways to help. Mm-hmm. If you don't ask, he's not going to tell you, hey, grab that, do this. He's not going to order you around like he would a packer. But if you ask him, that's going to go a long ways towards um, getting to know and, and kind of building that relationship with your guide in the field. 
and that can that can really help ease his mind as to what kind of a person you are going to be as his client. Right. Because as a guide, man, we never know what we're going to get. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. A lot of the clients are really, really great folks, but I've heard some horror stories. I, I've never had one personally, but I've heard some absolutely terrible stories about clients that are just lazy. They don't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. They're upset every day. They're, oh, I'm wet. I'm cold. We're not seeing any animals. Well, that's not very big, you know, and, mm-hmm. they, and they're just always pessimistic and needy and Debbie Downer about everything. Um, but for the, for, for the vast majority, that's not going to be what you're going to encounter. Right. But look for ways to help and pitch in and get to know your guide. And, uh, and that, that'll go a long ways towards showing him, hey, I'm here to work too. Yeah. I'm here to earn this animal. I'm here for the process. I want to see what you do. I I, I want to learn from you. Right. right. Try to embrace that whole process. Well, and, and it's just part of the experience, right? Right. I mean, you can, it, it sounds like you, you're kind of having the freedom to choose your own experience. Yes. And so you can look at it Absolutely. as, you know, this is just a vacation. Right. I'm just in a really cold, wet, you know, hard to get to, right. you know, resort kind of thing, yeah. you know, that, that um, and to where you're you're not doing much in the way of your own camp, your mm-hmm. own food, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Or you can look at it as the opportunity to be involved in a real deal Alaskan hunt. Yeah, on every level, yes. from setup to finding the animals to you know, like you you had mentioned, you know, holding legs and helping with the the skinning process where you can. Yeah, being involved and. Personally, I think that would add so much to the experience and the value of it, the experience. It really does. Know? I mean, yeah. it's one thing to be able to be taken out somewhere and shoot an animal. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's awesome. That's a lot of fun. Um, but to get to experience the the steps to get there yeah. and, and the process to get there, not just kind of follow along. Um, I, I feel for me personally, at yeah. least, and, and if you're a kind of a go-getter hunter and that's mm-hmm. why you're coming up here. Right. Um, now, and there are a lot of elderly people that come up as well. Right. You know, and, then, and they've, you know, like you said, been professionals at something their entire life. They've obviously been very successful if they're coming up here. They've kind of earned the right to sit back a little bit. Um, Absolutely. But if you can be part of the process, I, I think, especially for what it costs, it would add so much value to the process or, or to your experience. Kind of on that note, I, I, I've, I've, uh, I've said this to a few folks over the years now, and this, is, this really exemplifies what you were just talking about. At the end of a hunt, when, when, when a client is expressing their gratitude about the hunt, mm-hmm. it's very, very good for the guide to hear this from a client. Man, I had a great hunt. I had a great time. Thanks so much for everything you did. Okay, that's awesome. Every guide loves to hear that. Sure. Yeah. But for me personally, it is even better when a client says to me, man, I had a great time. I had a great hunt. I learned so much. Yeah. That, when they walk away, learning something from that experience, right. from being out there and taking part in the experience, they learned something new. Yeah. That to me, because they're going to go home and talk to all their buddies about that. Trophy stories change over time. Mm-hmm. Experiences change people forever. Right. Right. People go home a different person yeah after a life-changing experience on a hunt they find something new about themselves right hey, push themselves a little farther you know than what they thought they i can, can go. i can do this i never thought i could accomplish that physically yeah. or mentally you know what i stuck it out through a sucky storm for seven days in a tent <laughs> i didn't see the sun for 11 straight days 
Yeah. But uh, I didn't quit. I didn't ask to be flown home. I stuck it out. And, you know, even even on hunts where I've had guys that haven't killed animals, which have been um, extremely few. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah. Very, very few anyway, um, at least up to this point. And not to say that it won't happen, but even on hunts where guys don't kill their target species or every species that they had a tag for. Right. They still walk away, at, at least the positive attitude guys, they still walk away and say, I learned something and, mm-hmm. and I'm going to come back if I can and I'm going to do better. And that, that to me is the most valuable part of it. Now, obviously you want them to kill their animal, right? That's why they're there. They're there to kill their target animal. Right. And that's your job as the guide to provide them with that opportunity. Beyond that, that's out of your control. If they miss or if they um, make a bad shot and you don't recover it, you know, that's, that, that's a variable that's out of your control. Right. But it's your job to get them set up to the point where it's up to them to succeed with the kill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would just say that that's, that's the most gratifying thing that a guide can hear is that the client had a good time, they enjoyed themselves, and that they learned something and that they, they, they are coming away from that a different person from that experience that they had right um and that's really just it's a super powerful thing it is really to to put yourself in a position you'd otherwise never be in yeah to push yourself farther than you've ever pushed yourself before and to realize at the end of that that you are stronger than you thought you were yeah absolutely i mean even just doing that in your daily life is so like when you get out and you train and you you start realizing your true limitations past where your brain tells you this hurts or past mm-hmm. where your muscles start complaining. I mean, it, it's amazing. I mean, even when you're just driving around, you can look at a mountaintop and be like, I can get up there. Mm-hmm. You know, where Absolutely. before maybe you'd be like, <laughs> maybe someday. <laughs> right, you know? right, like, exactly. But that someday is then because you know you can make it to the top there. Exactly. So for somebody with that attitude mm-hmm. that's looking to really pull the most out of this experience that they can, Give a breakdown, and and again, this isn't going to cover every hunt style, every situation, but what is the average day in in, in camp going to look like? What what is the average, like, whether you're in base camp or spike camp, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you wake up, you get out, I'm assuming you eat some breakfast. If you're hunting at any given camp, then, uh, you know, you get up early. If you're... um, well, I mean, generally, if if the weather is good on on most hunts up here, um, some some coastal brown bear hunting is a little bit different. Some outfits operate a little bit differently. They don't hunt much in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, you hunt until about uh, well, until whenever it gets dark. Which right. For for a lot of spring bear hunting, like where I've guided a lot, um, in 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 that area, um, we have found in in those areas that uh, morning hunting is not productive. So we focus on from about uh, I don't know two or three o'clock in, in the afternoon of the day, past the second half of the day mm-hmm. um, until dark. And then sometimes we'll go to bed for an hour, wait for the light to come back, go back until five or 6 a.m. and then go to bed. And then you sleep through the morning until you know midday. You wake up and make your breakfast at 11 o'clock. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then you head to your spot by, again, one or two o'clock, um, sometimes three or four, depending on how hot it is and what the movement is like. Yeah. But for most of the other hunting, um, you know, sheep hunting, goat hunting, deer hunting, moose hunting, caribou hunting, um, and even like interior bear hunting, you're going to be up as often as possible when you have light mm-hmm. to see. 
Um, and that's just because the longer you're looking and glassing, the better chance, the better odds you have of spotting your animal. Absolutely. It's got nothing to do with when they're moving. It's got everything to do with, I might catch them going one place to another or laying down. You might catch a glint of moose antler from the mountaintop looking down into a valley. Um, if you're just up at a glassing vantage. Um, so it's just about time behind the glass spotting. So you get up early, as early as the guide wants to. And um, get up, make coffee, eat some breakfast. Um, usually, in, in in most given moose camps around the state, it's going to be a run silent, run deep camp. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to know what your guide's voice sounds like till the hunt's over. Yeah. And that is weird. <laughs> that is a strange feeling when you get to the end of the hunt and all you know your guide's voice to be is, all right, good morning. It's time to get up. Mm-hmm. And that's that's all you know your guide's voice sounds like (laughs) and then he speaks up and says hey can i get you a cup of coffee and you just your eyes just bug out like whoa (laughs) that's that's your real voice you know it's it's something you don't think about but i've seen it uh throw some guys for a loop it's 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 pretty funny when a hunt ends like that but moose hunting is going to be your most stealthy type of hunting Mm -hmm. you're just whispering you're absolutely dead quiet because moose can hear um, like radar can pick up airplanes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is insane how good their hearing is with right. those satellite dishes for ear amplifiers or for for, uh, for noise amplifiers. So um, you get up in the morning, you make your coffee, make your breakfast. And then um, soon after that, um, if you're moose hunting, you'll go out and call for a few hours in the morning, mm-hmm. wait for a response, listen and try to make a move on a bull if he responds that way. Um, otherwise, on most hunts where you're not going to be calling, you either move to a glassing area throughout the morning, and then you stop and you glass there, and you pretty much spend your whole day there. Yeah. Um, and then you, uh, you know, a, a lot of times if you've got a packer with you, he'll bring a jet boil or the guide will bring a jet boil as well, and you'll make lunch, make some hot coffee or something at the glassing knob where you have your vantage. So, again, you don't have to spend any more time away from that glassing vantage right. while you have light as possible. So. You'll probably make some lunch up there, but you spend pretty much the whole day with visibility to where you want to find your target animal. Right. And then as dark approaches, you go back to camp. Most of your dinners are going to be eaten in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, you're making dinners with a headlamp on. And uh, I, I know I mentioned this before, but uh, having a headlamp with red light, especially for moose hunting, where you're in and amongst that area where the moose are going to be um, in a more concentrated zone, mm. especially because you're calling them into that area. Right. You're hoping that they're in there or on their way, and they can see white light a lot better than they can see red light. Mm-hmm. So having a nice, dim red setting on your headlamp, you're going to make a lot of dinner in red light. Yeah. That's just how it's going to be. <laughs> um, and then pretty much when you get back to camp, when it's dark, I mean, it's time to uh, catch up on energy. And you mm-hmm. just uh, you get back to camp, you go to bed, Get up, copy, paste, repeat the next day. Um, yep. Depending on weather, you know, when you're up at your glassing knob, um, within reason, you're going to still be out hunting in, in, in adverse conditions of weather. Um, just because it's raining doesn't mean you're not going to be out hunting. Exactly. If it's raining and blowing really, really hard to the point where it's going to keep all the animals down and in cover, then you might not be out. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, that's going to be the only reason why you're not out glassing um, with daylight hours. That, that's that's kind of a you know day to day. Yeah. As you're out on the glassing knob, like I said before, even if all you have is binoculars, um, prop up one of your trekking poles, uh, kind of between your feet there while you're sitting on your rear end, 
and uh, set your set your binoculars on top of your trekking pole and stabilize them that way. Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, glass till your eyes bleed. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's gonna get old. It's gonna get boring. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, it's boring till it's not right. Uh, and, and and you know, you never know. You might be the guy. You might be the client that says to your guide, "Hey, there's a moose," mm-hmm. and he says, "Where?" And you spotted it before he did. Yo. Might end up being the bull that you kill, or it might just end up being a cow. But uh, try to contribute and 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 aid any any way that you can. Yeah. Um, the more eyes glassing, the better chances that the better odds you have of turning up an animal. So. Yeah. And, and that's true, honestly, of even non guided hunting. I mean, if you're when you're out there glassing, I mean, just it's it's hard not to sometimes in, in really adverse conditions. Yeah. Um, and if it's really, really bad, obviously make sure you're safe, make sure you're, you're not getting hypothermic or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you've been sitting there for a while and you still haven't seen anything, doesn't mean there's not a moose down there. Yeah. It just means he hasn't exposed himself yeah. to your particular angle yet. Right. Um, right. And <laughs> I like that, you know, glass till your eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, Cause that's what you feel yeah, like. Yeah. It's, it's, it's real. That's real. Yep. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Um, Another point I wanted to bring up was when it comes time to go on a stalk, this is especially when this is important, but this goes for the entire um, length of the hunt. Always do exactly what your guide asks you to do. Right. Um, Don't force your guide to have to give you a direct order and say, hey, I said don't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's firearm safety, because that is an area that um, anybody with a brain is going to have to crack down on you for that. Don't uh, don't go muzzle flashing somebody with your firearm. Yeah. Um, don't walk around with a broadhead on your arrow, um, knocked up on your string, and walking around through the you know. Don't uh, don't ever walk with your weapon in a position that it could harm somebody. Yeah. And on that note, always treat your firearm as if it's loaded. And I've had some clients that um, it's easy to just kind of forget about it. You know, we're hiking. He's walking behind me. He's got his rifle pointed directly at uh, at my legs or at my back, and I tell him, "Hey, put that over your shoulder or walk off to the side of me. Don't yeah. point that right at me." Right? Um, even the most experienced guys that I, you know, that, that people can come up on a hunt, um, it's easy to forget simple things like that. Don't overlook safety. Um, but yeah, always listen to your guide. But especially when it comes time to go on a stalk, right? Um, you want to copy his every move if he's on a stalk and he's hunched over crouched down trying to keep a low profile so you don't get busted don't walk up right behind him hey what you doing yeah (laughs) Yeah. like hey should i get down on my hands and knees too yes (laughs) you should have done it as soon as i did right Right. um most people catch on to that some don't Mm -hmm. um but you know if your guide says hey do what i do that means watch his hand signals because he's not going to turn his head around to communicate to you. Mm-hmm. He's going to hand signal you. He's either going to give you the high five, which means stop, or he's going to wave you on forward to come up behind him, right? Right. And if he stops and waves you on forward, that means he wants to come up. He wants you to come up to him to talk to him because he doesn't want to take his eyes off the animal at that given time. Yep. Um, but mimic what he does. If he's walking quietly and stepping lightly, do the same. If he's crouched over, you crouch over. If, yeah. he, if he freezes, don't keep walking mm-hmm. because you're in an uncomfortable position. Freeze because yeah. it might be the difference between that moose busting you or not. So, well, and, and that's the biggest, I mean, those moments, those particular moments are the biggest 
reason to have a guide. Yes. I mean, honestly, I mean, the, the not only getting to the spot where there's a higher likelihood of seeing the moose you're after, we'll just continue using moose as an example. Uh-huh. But uh, he knows the terrain. Yes. He's killed many of these animals. He knows their their level of awareness right and their their visibility how far they can see yes um he knows when you're in a situation that you can get busted mm-hmm. you don't right you know <laughs> so right. um you know you might be able to make your own mountain house and yeah it's great that you know they boil the water for you and, and get you your mountain house right but that's not what he's there for mm-hmm. he is there for this particular moment so this is why he's there right. this is his whole point Yes. And, and so kind of having the respect for that, the respect for the art and, and the, the professionalism that goes into that, the knowledge yes. um, is huge and, and can very much affect your success. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a great point. Um, this is a given, but uh, again, this is not from personal experience, but from horror stories of other uh, fellow industry members. <laughs> Never shoot unless the guide expressly instructs you to do so right don't ever shoot an animal without the express permission of your guide Mm -hmm. if you have a wolf tag and your guide is uh out answering the call of nature behind Mm -hmm. camp somewhere in the morning after his cup of coffee and he's only 30 yards away in the bushes and you're sitting out there in front of your tent with your rifle and a wolf runs down the riverbank, let's just say, yeah. the situation. You've got a wolf tag. You can kill a wolf legally here. You know that. Your guide has told you that you can. Well, maybe it's not a wolf. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're looking at a big coyote. Yeah. Maybe you're looking at a silver tip fox in some brush that you think, oh, I, I see some gray. I see some ears. I think that's a small wolf. Well... Right. You need your guide to identify what you're about to shoot. Or you say, oh my goodness, my guide's you know 30 yards away and there's this monstrous bull moose. <laughs> I think I see four brow tines. He's got to be 50. Kaboom. Yeah. Well, now you're in trouble, right? Yep. If it's not a legal animal. And even if it is, your guide is still going to be hot if you yeah, do that. Absolutely. Um, even animals that, uh, that you are legally allowed to kill, if, if you know 100% and you're an experienced black bear hunter mm-hmm. and your guide is, is out of sight, you know, wh- whether it's 20 yards away or 20 feet away, and he doesn't see something or he's turned around doing something else and a black bear walks out and it doesn't have cubs, it's out in the wide open, you've got a black bear tag and you can that black bear before he gives you permission to do it. Mm-hmm. He is not going to be happy with you. Right. That's not the right thing to do. Always wait until you get the express okay from your guide to shoot anything. Yeah. Um, That's, you know, again, probably not going to happen to most people, (laughs) but you never know. Well, and I'll actually take it on the the inverse side of that too Mm -hmm. and say, obviously, permission from the guide comes first. Yes. But verify for yourself as well. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, the, it is the, the guide's job to identify a legal animal and to identify what you can and cannot shoot. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you are the person behind the trigger. Mm-hmm. You are the one shooting the animal. Um, and, and this goes for if you're uh, buddy hunting too. You know, if you're out there with your friends and he says, oh, I, I guarantee it's legal. I guarantee it's legal. Don't just take the word. 
Yeah. Now, obviously, if you have no experience in, in sheep judging or anything like that, which in, I would say most cases, people don't. Mm-hmm. Um, they may have looked into it. They may have done some research. Watched um, a few YouTube videos. Watched a few yeah. YouTube videos, which I, I, and I, I would definitely highly recommend Absolutely. You know, learning as best you can to judge the animal you're going to be hunting for yourself as well. Um, but make sure you are comfortable pulling the trigger on that animal. Yeah. Uh, we had an episode a while ago now about yeah. sublegal sheep. Yes. The, the, the sublegal sheep harvest in last year's season. Um, there were 34 of them, I believe, yeah, was, was some, what the total came up to. there, yeah. Um, and not all of them were DIY hunts mm-hmm. from residents. You know, yeah. there were guided hunts in there oh, as well. There were several yeah. guided hunts. And several. It, it's not to say that, you know, majority of guides are this way. It's not to say a lot of guides are this way, but everybody makes mistakes. They're human, just you know, like you and me. They're, they're yeah. human. And sometimes if it's, you know, the pressure's on, and they're really the sheep are having a hard time these days you know so i mean maybe you're not seeing that many legal sheep yes you want to provide your client with something that's that they can take home Mm -hmm. you know especially if it's in in the last you know quarter of the hunt yeah um you don't want them to go home paying all that money without a trophy right um and so with all the best of intentions maybe you just missed that you know quarter of an inch at the end and that is enough to make it sublegal absolutely um so make sure if the guide says it's okay, to the best of your knowledge, that you are also comfortable shooting that animal. Mm-hmm. Now, most people coming up on a guided sheep hunt aren't going to be able to judge that quarter inch either. Right. You know, but, right. Um, but, you know, to an obvious extent, I'll give two examples. If you are bear hunting mm-hmm. and your guide says, that's a legal bear, kill that bear. Now, bear hunting up here is not regulated ver- uh, boar versus sow, but it is regulated sow versus sow with cubs right it is legal for you to shoot a sow but if that sow has cubs you can't shoot it Mm -hmm. and if your guide doesn't see a cub that you see and he says go ahead yeah take it Mm -hmm. and you say no there's i I, hey you know i i I think i see a cub in there if you think there might be a cub there yeah tell your guide and say hey I, i think i saw something moving behind it there i think there might be a cub or another bear let's just wait yeah He's going to say, oh, geez, yeah, thanks. I, right. I appreciate the heads up. You right, know? right. Um, he'll, he'll be grateful for that. Mm-hmm. With extra, again, extra set of eyes. Um, guides aren't perfect either. You know, yeah. it, it, we're, we're all human. We all can make mistakes. It's, it, we are no better um, at, uh, at, at avoiding mistakes than anybody else. It, it happens just to us in different ways than it might to other people. Um, but yeah, have an extra set of eyes there and just... Try to be educated and up to speed on things. Yep. Another example would be a moose. If, if if your guide says, "Well, look, he's not fifty, but he's got uh, but he's got four brow tines," right? And you say, "Um, that's three, right?" And the, here, look at my angle, mm-hmm. right? And, and you can kind of say, "Well, it, is it really four? Yeah, you might cause him to take another look, even after he's looked multiple times. Maybe he made a mistake, right? Yep. It doesn't hurt to just say, "Hey, can you verify this?" I'm seeing something different. What am I seeing? Help me out here. Right. And just add that layer of extra protection there. Yep. Um, most of the time, um, I would say over 90% of the time, your guide is going to be right if he says, that's a legal animal, you can take oh, it. Oh, I would say probably even 95. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's yeah. most it's of the time. It's going to be the vast majority <laughs> yes. of the time. Yes. However, um, like you said, it is something to keep in mind. You are the guy pulling the trigger. You are the ultimate responsible party. 
Yes. For that. It now, is your hunt, it is your tag. The trooper is going to come after the outfit for it. Oh, yes, um, he will. As well, but you're not off the hook because you were guided. Right. Right. So, um, we covered that. Um, tip your guide. Mm. This is kind of a touchy subject. Now, <laughs> this is not something that we're going to talk about how much you tip a guide, but you tip a waiter at a restaurant because they served you that right. night, right? They filled your water glass whenever it was empty. They asked you if you wanted ketchup with them fries. <laughs> Not that many restaurants that have waiters or waitresses serve fries with ketchup. Um, ah, but the restaurants I go to. Steakhouses, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, the classy joints of Fairbanks. Yeah. <laughs> but um, ahead of the hunt, speak with the outfitter and ask, uh, ask him what the appropriate amount is to tip your guide for the hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as a backup to that, plan to bring some extra money to tip any other guides or packers, or camp cooks, or camp staff, or pilots that are directly assisting in your hunt. Right. Um, If you get flown out um, by a pilot from base camp to a spike camp, Mm -hmm. well, you're not, that uh, that pilot is not going to get a tip for the hunt. He's not the guide. And you shouldn't tip him as much as you tip your guide. But you should tip them something. If you got you there safe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you tipping him a little bit is going to make sure that the next time you come back up, he wants to fly you again. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen some guys get blacklisted over the years <laughs> yeah. because they were rude to their pilots and uh, didn't treat him with respect, didn't say thank you, mm-hmm. mean mugged him the whole time because, well, I didn't see the bear that I wanted to kill or I didn't see the moose I wanted to kill or I, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Or it rained the whole time. They were just grumpy. Well, pilots have a hard job. Yeah. Okay. They take their life into their own hands every time they leave the ground. Yeah. And when you get on an airplane and you're ungrateful and you don't say thank you and you don't give them anything for a tip, I've I've heard of pilots blacklisting clients before. Oh, sure. That want to come back. Yeah. And the pilot says, nope, I won't fly that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so you're pretty much out of luck at that point. <laughs> um, so yeah, a- anybody that's directly involved in your hunt, yeah. you should tip them something. The majority of your tip should go to the main lead guide on the hunt mm-hmm. and then also tip the packer for his effort. Yeah. Um, and don't just give the packer a hundred bucks. Okay? Right. Um, give him more than that. Right. Give him something for his time. Keep in mind, these guys are not making great money. Well, I was going to say, it, kind of a, a throwback to what you were saying before where, you know, nobody that's a professional hunter or a guide is making buku bucks. Right. You know, they're not, they're not getting rich. They're not, coming out of the field and going back to their villa you know right. they're right. they're right. you know they're they're everyday people so you know when, when you think about the breakdown of what that cost it, it's yeah. very easy from an outside perspective to look at i don't let's say a moose hunt costs you twenty five thousand dollars okay um gen, random number but general yeah. um right around there that twenty five thousand dollars is not just getting it is not just going into his pocket right. because oh i have access to this moose and if you want it you're gonna have to get pay me 25 grand right he's not taking all that he's taking that twenty five thousand and giving it to the pilot and giving it to um all of the staff that mm-hmm. works there even the ones you don't see yes um and you know the uh the licensing costs money the insurance costs money the fuel for the plane takes money 
by the time that's all whittled away and nickel and dimed every which direction, mm-hmm. I mean, the the actual guides and especially the packers that carry all of your stuff around for you for the entire time you're there, you know, they're not making anything more than your average blue collar worker is. No. And so when they put in that extra effort, you know, that extra mile, that extra steps to get you something and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, really, really try, I mean, I'm sure it goes a long ways. And not only in the feeling of of being appreciated for your efforts, but also, you know, I mean, everybody has expenses in life. Absolutely. So I'll I'll say it this way. By the end of your hunt, you're missing home. Oh, yeah. You're gone for, you know, let's just say 15 days on your your hunt of a lifetime. And you're like, man, sure do miss my wife and kids and my family back home. And and my my workmates are going to be so happy to see me come home. We're going to go out to dinner somewhere and I'm going to show my pictures and we're just going to talk this out. Well, you're going to leave and that guide and packer are going to go back to base camp, maybe jump in the quick shower, wash some clothes in a bucket and get maybe (laughs) one or two nights of sleep. And they're going to go right back out into the field and do it all over again. Mm-hmm. And spend weeks and weeks and weeks on end at a time. Yeah, doing that over and over and over and over again. And they've got wives too. They've got kids. They've got responsibilities. People right. relying on them. Right. And while they're away, they ain't getting paid. Yeah. You don't get paid till the season's over. Right. Okay. And uh, in in today's economy, that's not easy. Yeah. Okay. And, and 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 I'm not trying to play my own fiddle here and try to make everybody feel like, wow, you know, you sacrifice so much. There are thousands of guides in this state, easily. Mm-hmm. Thousands of licensed assistant guides, just like me, that all do the exact same thing. And and people don't do that because they make a lot of money at it. They make they they make that sacrifice because we enjoy what we're doing. Right. It's a fulfilling thing to do. I, if I wanted to hunt just for myself, sure, I, I could take eight weeks consecutively mm-hmm. and just hunt for myself and not make anything. Guiding is a way that um, you can pay some of your bills, right? And something that that you learn to appreciate more as as you as you get more experience years as a guide is you you become more and more fulfilled with your clients' experiences, and the better time they have, the more fulfilling that is for you. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy watching a client complete the hunt of a lifetime that they've dreamed about for decades longer than I've even been alive most mm-hmm. times. You know, you get these old guys up here and it's been their dream for 45 years, 50 years since they were a little kid mm-hmm. to come up and kill a brown bear, for instance. Right. They've been dreaming about that since, since uh, the Vietnam War was going on, <laughs> since 30 years before I was even born. Yeah. Okay. Thro- throwing nickels and dollars in, into a sock somewhere to, to right. save for this their whole life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I've had guys say that. Yeah, I I, I put money into a uh, in, into a five gallon water jug, and that's how I paid for this hunt. Yep. Had somebody say that one time. Yep. That blew me away. This guy didn't have nice gear. He didn't have a two million dollar house. He didn't have a brand new pickup truck. This was a guy just like you and me, mm-hmm. blue collar hometown guy, down south, just really always wanted to come up to Alaska, and he did that. And that to me. That that makes me feel so honored that I'm the guy that was chosen to do that hunt. Right. Not by the outfit or anybody else. That's just, okay, you're going to take this guy, mm-hmm. right? But God aligned that. God put me with that guy. 
Yeah. And now I have the responsibility to do my dead level best to give him the experience that he's always dreamed of having. Right. And I can't tell you how much that means when a client entrusts that one-time experience with you. Mm. That it, that that's that's a lot of weight, but that's that's why that's why I love doing it. That's right. what makes it all worthwhile. That's why I don't care how much money it is necessarily. Obviously, it has to make you something. Yeah. But <laughs> tips, but back to that, are a huge help to that. Yeah. Just like you tip your waiter at a restaurant, you need to tip your guide. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you how much you have to tip, but ask the outfitter. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's the least that you can do as the client to, uh, to give them that gratuity right. for that service. They are going to bust their bones packing out animals for you, making you food, ensuring that you're safe the whole time, and giving you that great experience. So mm-hmm. the tip does go a long ways. And it means more than you might know to right. a lot of these guys. So that's something not to overlook. Ask the outfitter about it before the hunt. Well, and, and for anybody not familiar with the culture of being taken somewhere right. to shoot something, if this might be your first guided hunt, mm-hmm. um, you know it, it, that mentality of tipping the individual mm-hmm. is universal. Oh, I mean, yeah. if you go on a halibut charter, right? You know, and, and you have the captain, and maybe he's got two deckhands that take you out, and and you go out and you catch some halibut hopefully you catch your limit and you're coming home and they're flaying your fish for you yeah on the way home when you get back to port it, it is you know i guess you could say customary yeah to tip them you know yeah. yes it's an expensive charter but there's a lot of overhead in that too mm-hmm. and and it, it really shows the appreciation mm-hmm. um absolutely and, and like the way you equated it to to a waiter you know everybody yeah. knows you tip, you tip a waiter right everybody knows it it's just a given it's the exact same thing with guiding yeah you know whether you're getting taken out for river trout or halibut or a brown bear or a moose mm-hmm. or a caribou right it's it's just the same yeah. kind of cultural uh thing to do absolutely so. yeah and, and and it does go a long way to an outfitter when on the phone you say hey how much do i need to uh to tip my guide right that shows him hey this guy wants to take care of his of of his of his guide that's providing this service that mm-hmm. that really that really goes a long ways when you're talking to an outfitter so that he knows that you want to help take care of that guy that's going to do that service for him. Right. Um, so anyway, not to spend too much time on that. Um, the last thing is probably the most important item that I really wanted to get to. Um, your mental state on mm-hmm. a hunt like that, especially in Alaska. Alaska is a huge state. If you cut Alaska in half, Texas would be the third largest state. <laughs> There's not a moose around every spruce tree. Mm-hmm. There's not a brown bear on every river. There's not a doll sheep on every peak. Right. And there's not a mountain goat on every ridgetop. And there's not a deer in every willow patch. Yeah. Okay. Alaska is vast and the animal density varies greatly between different areas. Yeah. In some areas, you can drive for hours and hours and hours on a road system and not see anything yeah. for wildlife. Nothing. All you're yeah. going to hit is mosquitoes, dragonflies, and the occasional bird that'll fly across the road. <laughs> Probably a porcupine off to the side somewhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> Other sections of the state, you might not be able to drive two hours without seeing a dozen moose, maybe mm-hmm. a few caribou. You might even see a bear, and you'll see sheep up off the highway. Yep. Densities vary. Yeah. Nothing is a given for how much wildlife or what 
kind of, uh, well, not even what kind, but what caliber of wildlife you're going to see on any given hunt. Right. Um, that's not in the outfitter's control. Yeah, this isn't Yellowstone. <laughs> this is, uh, Alaska is not canned hunting. Yeah. We don't have a stockpile, 40-foot container yard <laughs> no. full of full of tranquilized, you know. Um, <laughs> no high fences around here. Right, yeah. right. Bears that we just release into an area, and, we, and then we bring you out there, and it seems wild, and you just kill it. You hear stuff like that happening in some areas around uh, around our world today, and that's very frowned upon. However, that's not Alaska. No. These are 100% wild, untamed, untouched animals. Some of them don't even know what people are. Yeah, if you get far enough out, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's the outfitter's job, obviously, to put you in a good place that he knows, that he's hunted before, that he's researched, that he has time there, um, that he's going to put you there with a guide that knows how to hunt that animal. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, it, it's, it's not that uncommon to go to an outfitter and your guide might not have even worked for that outfitter before. A lot of guides are just subcontractors, and mm-hmm. they'll go work for this guy this year and this guy next year, and then eventually he'll have kind of his few outfits that he works for as a subcontractor. That's pretty common up here. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you'll have a guide that might not even hunted that spot before, but he knows, let's say, how to hunt moose, or he knows how to hunt brown bears. Mm-hmm. And so as long as he's put in a good area with that animal somewhere, He's experienced enough that he can sniff one out and find it for you to kill. And that's a, that, that's a pretty common thing to see up here. Um, but your expectation level needs to be realistic. At the end of the day, you have the possibility to have 10 days out of 12 days spent in a tent in 80 mile an hour winds and driving rain. <laughs> and you might not get to hunt very much at all. Right. Is that going to happen? Yeah, probably not, but I've heard of it. Yeah. I've heard of guys spending even longer than that consecutively in a tent, and they lose their whole hunt, and then they're stuck out there longer than they were supposed to be out there anyway. Right, miss their flight back. And, it's like, an, and, and then it becomes yeah. a survival situation. I've heard of guys having to dig into snow caves when they're up north guiding for caribou or something like that. They get snowed in. Super Cub can't land there in three feet of snow. Mm-hmm. And well, what if the snow's there to stay? Now we've got to walk out to somewhere else where a plane can land to get us. Yeah. Or try to look into getting a helicopter in here. And so uh, Alaska's weather variables is going to be the single most influential factor on a hunt's um, variance of outcome potential. Yeah. I, I guess if we can just put it that way. <laughs> If you have great weather that's conducive to hunting that particular animal, um, then as long as as long as you do your part and hunt hard, and your guide knows how to conduct that hunt, then you've got as good a chance as anybody of finding a good mature species to take. But even then, you can sit overlooking a great area for the for the entire duration of your hunt, mm-hmm. and you might not see the right animal. Right. It just might not happen. Um, obviously, nobody wants that to happen. And you shouldn't go into it expecting it to be that way, but prepare yourself for that. The way I've heard it expressed is they cannot sell an animal. They can only sell a hunt. That's exactly right. So One of the outfitters I work for says that. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very true. It has every single possibility of any other hunt you've ever done. Yes. Of maybe you'll succeed and maybe you don't. Mm -hmm. The stakes might just be a little higher financially. 
Right. But, (laughs) which it's easy for us to say sitting on this side of it. Right. Yeah. It's easy for me to say because I'm not the one spending X thousands of dollars for any given hunt. Right. But it's the truth. Yeah. We don't control that. And you have to understand that if you can't accept the fact that there is a chance, no matter how small or how large, Mm -hmm. you might not kill your target species on your hunt. If you cannot accept that, then don't come to Alaska for a hunting trip. You're not ready for it. Don't do it. Yeah. I had a client um, somewhat recently. I'm not going to say who it was or when, but it was on a a hunt. I'm I'm not even going to say what what, uh, what it was a hunt for because I don't want to give away too much detail. But, um, and he listens to the podcast and he'll, he'll appreciate it. We were deep into a hunt. We had, uh, we had not found a target species animal that we were really trying to get. Yeah. And this guy had by far the best attitude and outlook and mental focus to just succeed. He was just determined. I never had to talk him into going hunting. I almost felt bad once or twice because he was down there just like, totally set to go. <laughs> like I'd said, be ready by three o'clock to leave here. You know, it was hot that day. Mm-hmm. I said, be ready by three and we'll get over there in like 15, 20 minutes and then we'll start glassing. And uh, I, I kind of felt bad because at like 2.40, he was standing there with his boots on and his pack on. <laughs> you ready? Like, well, what time was it? I said three. I want to make a sandwich, you know? <laughs> but uh, if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but he said something that, that, uh, that really, really carried a lot of weight. And that it, it was so encouraging to have a client with this outlook. And he said, you know what? I'm not here to just kill that animal. Mm-hmm. I'm here to have an experience. I'm here to learn. I'm here to better myself. And I realize that I have to get up every single day with the same energy and focus and determination as I did when I first got here. Yeah. I can't let that wane just because it's nine days into the hunt. Right. And now we're experiencing a hurricane and we're not even able to hunt for two or three days. Mm -hmm. He never said that. He said, you know what? Okay, we're stuck in a tent for a few days now. Oh, well, when it clears or if it catches a break, we're going to go do our best. And we're going to do our best to put ourselves in a position to succeed. I didn't have to talk him in to going to sit underneath of a tarp Mm -hmm. and glass in 40-mile-an-hour winds because I knew that the weather was going to break in one hour. And if we sat there through that break until it got bad again, that might be our window. Mm -hmm. You just never know. I never had to talk him into it. He was always just ready to go. Smile on his face, ready to go. Right. And um, I, I know I mentioned this earlier, and I, I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way. Every guide wants to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not been guiding for 15, 20 years, right? Right. On the grand scheme of things, I'm just getting started. Yeah. And I, I've, I've got a few years of experience, and I, I've, I've learned a lot since I started. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's humbling getting to work with all these different clientele. And like I said, you learn to appreciate their expertise in one way or another that they have reached in their life. Yeah. There's always something to learn from your client as well. And that's a different discussion. Um, but having a client that makes your job easier, that you don't have to reassure them every day, mm-hmm. um, just makes my job easier. And um, kind of go back to that. Everybody wants to be successful. Right. I want to be successful as the guide. I want to send my client home with an animal. That's the ultimate goal. 
And I mentioned earlier that I hadn't had very many hunts where my client hadn't gotten an animal. Well, this guy didn't get his target species. And I don't say that as a brag either. Mm. I haven't hunted the sheer volume that a lot of other guides have in this state. There, right. are, there are hundreds of other outfitters in the state that have more years than I do in this. Yeah. And I don't say that as a brag like, I've, well, I've only ever had a couple of hunters that didn't get their target animal. Well, that, yes, that is true. But you have to give God the credit because not all that's in my control either. Right. And you pray every day, at least I do. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Lord, give me good weather. Please give us a chance at a legal animal today. Yep. Let me do my job. Help me to do my best yeah. every single day. And uh, that's, that's not to, to brag on that, but I've also been put in very good areas to right. succeed. And that's to the credit of the outfitter. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when a client goes home, like I said earlier, having that positive mental mindset, of, you know what, I learned something, I had a great time. Mm-hmm. And as the guide, even if they don't kill an animal, if you can send them home with a smile and a great experience, that animal will gradually mean less and less, even if they don't kill the animal. Right. So. They, they paid for a wonderful experience in the back country of what I would consider the prettiest state. Oh, I agree. So, I agree. and you know, to that point, understand that it, it does get hard and it does get uh, anxiety ridden or you can mm-hmm. tend to get anxious towards the last bit of a hunt. But just always remember, you have every bit as good of a chance on the last day yes. that you do on the first day That's absolutely of succeeding. True. Absolutely. The moose don't stop moving around just because they know you're about to leave. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right. Your chances don't right. slim down. They don't get tired at the end of your hunt. <laughs> right. Yeah. You <laughs> right. might, but they don't. Right. Um, right. So just understand like just i I love what what you said about that that client and his attitude was just if i get up every single day with the exact same energy with the exact same you know drive Mm -hmm. i'm gonna get out there and even if it's the last day i'm gonna understand that as long as i'm giving my everything um he's gonna have just as much of a chance of success and 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 i love because the biggest limiting factor at the end of a hunt is you yeah you're the only thing that's going to slim down the chance of you You're the only thing that you can control. If if you're going to be out there, let's say you're out there for 10 days, Mm -hmm. and on day seven, you haven't even seen a legal sheep yet, Mm -hmm. and you just get discouraged, and so you you sleep in in your tent, you know, and and you're just kind of moping, and you you get up, and you kind of slowly get around, and then maybe you make it out into the mountain. That's what's going to limit your ability to get a sheep. Yep. But if you wake up every single day, even if you're not successful, yep. at least you can walk away from that hunt knowing you did everything you could. Yeah. There's zero, zero other factors. Yep. You tried your best and yep. you can have pride in that. No matter what the weather did, no matter what anything else happened, yep. no matter what kind of area you might or might not have been in, yeah. you did everything in your power that you could yep. to succeed. And that goes for guided hunts and non-guided hunts. Yes. Exactly. I, I have one more closing thought. I was in a tough spot at one point during a guided hunt. I had a client. There was a situation that came up, and um, um, I, I, without giving any detail, I, I was in a tough spot mm. in, in this particular hunt. I was guiding the hunt, and um, I have uh, a very few people that I remain in touch with back here at home uh, via my inReach mm-hmm. during the guiding season. Um, but, uh, I, I was, I was in a low spot 
mentally. I, I was I was getting kind of down on myself, and uh, I I was getting discouraged about something, and um, I reached out to my dad, mm. and uh, I I messaged him, and I I told him what was going on, and he responded, and he said, "Look, you know what you're supposed to do, you know how this goes," and he he gave me some advice and you know some wisdom and things like that, but then he uh, he quoted a verse mm-hmm. um, from the Bible, and and a part of the verse was, "Bring all of your thoughts into captivity." Control your thoughts. Don't let your mind wander. Mm-hmm. Don't let yourself worry. Um, you know, don't don't let fear and emotions control your decision making. Right. That, that's basically what he was trying to say. Like, apply that here. Mm-hmm. And that just was enough to just bring me back in and go. You know what? That's part of the deal. I didn't sign up to bag groceries. Yeah. <laughs> This is guiding. This is, you know what? This is the outdoor industry. This is tough. It's not always going to be easy. Yeah. You're going to have hard days. You're going to have bad days. Yeah. You're going to feel like, you know what? I'd rather be in my living room right now with my wife eating a hot meal, not shivering my toenails off today. Yeah. You know? And it, but having that, uh, just keep your thoughts into captivity. Yeah. Don't let your mind wander. And even as the client, don't get discouraged. Don't stress yourself out. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, obviously be safe, yeah. you know, take risk into factor <laughs> into consideration, but keep a positive mental attitude. Mm-hmm. And, um, I know it's cliche and it's even cliche to call something cliche now, <laughs> but trust the process, right? You put in the work, right? Do what you can and trust the process. And that's all you can do. Do your best and, uh, make it the experience of a lifetime. Right. And understanding too that there's motivation to be had in in a group setting like that. Yeah. If you're sitting there at a glassing knob and the wind's howling and, and there's rain and you're cold and wet, so is your guide. Oh yeah. So is that packer. <laughs> <laughs> like, you better so, believe it, baby. You know, You'd better believe so, it. You know, if they're if they're sitting there, you know, <laughs> stoic and just continuing the hunt, yeah. you know, dive into that motivation. Yeah. You know, pull that motivation from them and their yeah. experience that well, this is just how it goes. Yeah. So, and, and and you'll be glad you did at the end of the day. Absolutely. Well, guys, hopefully this helped you out if you were planning on uh, coming up for a guided hunt. Um, again, if you would like to support what we're doing here, definitely give us a give us a rating. Um, ratings help out a lot. Uh, give us a review on whatever pro- uh, platform you're listening to us on. Uh, that really goes a long way in helping people find the show. And uh, the best way you can help us is by shopping with our sponsors. You want to. Remind them really quick who those are. Yeah, yeah, just really quick. Um, if you want to look for those on our website, they have their partners page, um, but just a quick format list here. We have Stealthy Hunter, Stealthy Nutrition. Um, then we have Yukon River Knives. We have Hammer Bullets. All three of those companies have discount codes directly through our podcast. Those three companies' discount codes are The Northern Hunter, no caps, no space in the promo code box at checkout. Mm-hmm. If you want to use a discount code at our other sponsor, Batem907, you can use the discount code TNHP. And then uh, last but not least, our remaining partner is Weatherby. No discount code there. Um, but if you do decide to purchase Weatherby and we helped influence that decision, we'd appreciate it if in your order at some, uh, in some way, shape, or form, you could uh, let them know that we sent you. Yep, absolutely. And uh, another way, as of the time of this release of this episode, yes, go get you some Northern Hunter merch. Yes, you sir. go to thenorthernhunter.com, there will be a shop. 
logo there. In good faith. In good faith. <laughs> hats, hats, hoodies, and tees. <laughs> hats, hoodies, and tees. And we're, we're going to be putting more on there as we go. So, And don't forget, if you, uh, if you would also be so kind, another way to um, help us grow the show um, is to um, uh, give us a review on whatever platform you're listening on or, um, or, or rate the show. And also help us by uh, by writing in questions like we mentioned at the beginning of this show mm-hmm. as well, uh, so we can continue to answer questions that you guys have uh, in future episodes. Absolutely. If you have any questions on anything we mentioned, if you want some uh, expansion on a certain topic, uh, maybe yeah. something that confused you, uh, send an email to info at thenorthernhunter.com. That'll get you directly to us. You can find us on uh, Instagram or Facebook currently. Uh, we're hopefully going to have more soon coming. So uh, yeah. And, uh, but that's at the Northern Hunter. Or if you do end up on our website while you're buying some merch, uh, you know, hit that contact us button, send us a note. We love hearing from everybody. Uh, we answer some questions on the show, mention some comments on the show, but we get quite a bit more than just what we mentioned. And, and we try yeah. to respond to everybody and, and we love hearing from you guys. We love interacting. So yeah, um, hopefully you guys are, uh, are going to have a great week. And until next time, get out there, get after it, and good luck. See you next time.